Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Well, by now, everybody has had at it. You know what I mean? Uh, everybody has criticized the Denver Broncos. Everybody's called out the coaching staff that pulled the generational talent that is Russell Wilson off the field on fourth down and opted to kick a... Hail Mary field goal? Like, really? That was the plan? But I want to ask more fundamental questions. When you look at the management style of the Denver Broncos coaching staff, is this an unforgivable sin? Is there any coming back for the Denver Broncos? Or did the lack of faith in Russell Wilson, the undermining of the coaching staff in week one, The tremendous storyline that we all witnessed in Seattle last night. Is there no coming back for the Denver Broncos coaching staff? What I mean by that is sometimes you have young coaches and experienced coaches, new coaches who just come in and make a bad decision early in their tenure that sets the tone for everything that comes after it. Did the Broncos do that in week one or do they get a mulligan? And Seattle fans who booed Russell Wilson, I didn't agree with it. It's not what I would have done if I were inside the stadium. But uh, I do believe that fans have the right to boo when they want to boo. But I just don't get it. I don't get cheering for a guy. I don't get going to the parade. I don't get saying, hey, he's the greatest leader quarterback. He led the Seahawks to their only Super Bowl championship. I don't get booing the guy. After he's done all that. But help me understand, if you were booing him, what that was about. And help me understand when the Seahawks one day put Russell Wilson in their ring of honor or put him, uh, you know, retire his jersey number. What happens then? Do you cheer him? Do you, uh, do you, as Neil Olshay said, do you bifurcate those things? Or what, what happens with you as a sports fan? 503 417 7575. Uh, It was a wild scene last night. Russell Wilson, after the game, defended his coach. But everybody who saw the game knows that, you know, it was a monumental coaching decision. It was an absolute brain lock by the Denver Broncos coaching staff. And it came down to a 64-year-old, 64-yard field goal attempt. Here's the radio call. Ball put down. Right footed kick is away. And it is no good wide left. And the sideline erupts for Seattle. They'll take over. Right now, I'm speechless. I can't believe they took the ball out of Russell Wilson's hands to kick a 64-yard field goal to try to win this game. Out of Russell Wilson's hands and into the wind. Here's Russell Wilson after the game. Well, we got the the best field goal kicker maybe in the game. Um, we knew that. We, yeah, 
Yeah, we we said uh, we said you know where can you make it from tonight? And he said 46 left hash. I think we were on the 46 right, 46 left hash. That was before the drive, and we got it. We got it there. Unfortunately, it didn't go in. Um, I think he has a leg for it for sure. Um, you know, just went a little left, I believe, and just um, you know, in, in terms, of, I believe in Coach Hack. I believe in what we we're doing. Um, you know, and believe in everything, and. Uh, you know, any time you can try to find a way to make a play on fourth and five, that's great too. But also, we I think we I think I don't think it was the wrong decision. You know, I think he can make it. Obviously, we hindsight, you know, we didn't make it. But uh, if we were in that situation again, I wouldn't doubt whatever he decided. There it is, Russell Wilson. What's your reaction to it? Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. The Manning cast I think has been a good addition to the coverage of Monday Night Football, and it is going to be copied, I think, across sports in a variety of different ways. But I thought it was interesting uh, to, you know, this morning I went back and I listened to the, uh, the, the sequence leading into the field goal attempt. Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, uh, on the call, watching the game. Sutton, Sutton. Uh-oh. Oh, oh, yes. A good play. Big now, miss. Now, 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 now we got fourth and five. Fourth and five is doable. We got three timeouts. See, I might use one right here. E. Let's use Without. one. Let's talk about this one. Let's talk about this one. They're gonna try to draw. They can oh, try to draw here. them off sides. Might try to draw them off sides. E. You don't have that you much time. Snap count. You well, you don't want to waste that much time. I don't think. Oh, running the play. They look, they look unsettled. Sutton doesn't know what he's doing. Hurry up. Hurry up. Come out. Come out. Come out. What the? So you just burned 30 seconds to call a timeout? Second timeout. A lot of time. A lot of time wasted right there to call a timeout, Pete. Yes. Right? Yes. Now if you if you get five yards. Still got two timeouts, but you gotta you gotta get some yardage. They're gonna kick it. They're gonna kick it. Kick what? Oh, they're gonna kick. They're kicking it right here. Kicking the field goal right here. Hold on. Oh. They're kicking Let me see how far this 62 is. Sixty-two yarder. Sixty-three yarder. What? As we all know now, from sixty-four, no good. Broncos lose. Seahawks win. I want your reaction. Uh, is it an unforgivable sin? Uh, what the Denver Broncos coaching staff did there. Is it something they come back from, or is the moment? Because, like, with a lot of head coaches that eventually get fired, you can always look back to a moment where they lost the locker room or a moment where they lost ownership or management or a moment where they just went uh, awry. I think, you know, you look at Mark Helfrich's tenure at the University of Oregon and you, you point to the Washington game where Washington put a million points on Oregon and you go, okay, that was the moment. It didn't matter what happened after. It didn't matter that they went to Utah and won. Uh, he was in trouble from that moment on. It was a loss that you don't come back from. Is it possible that the Denver Broncos, in game one with Russell Wilson, with a coaching staff that's just trying to find its way, it has uh, officially lost the locker room or maybe lost its way? And for Seattle fans who were booing, please tell me what it was about. Help me understand. Help me understand your frustration with Russell Wilson. Help me understand why you were booing. 503-417-7575 is a phone number. we got a great show for you today. Bruce Barnum, the Portland State football coach, will be with us in the 3 o'clock hour. Jack Coletto, hero from Saturday night, will be with us at 4 o'clock. Oregon State 
running back, linebacker, quarterback, whatever you want to call him, the Swiss Army knife. What does he tell people, by the way, when they ask him what position he plays? What does he tell people? If you're Jack Coletto, what do you say? We'll talk to Jack Coletto coming up 4 o'clock. But I want your phone calls right here and now at 503-417-7575. What did you see last night? What did it mean? Is there any coming back? And if you're a Seahawks fan who was booing in your living room or booing in the stadium or supporting people who booed, or maybe not, if you're a Seahawks fan in general, help me understand what that was about, what the anger, the frustration. I heard some people today say, well, Russell Wilson is fake. That's why I was booing. Yeah, I think all athletes to some extent tell us and show us what they want to tell us and show us. There's not a total authenticity in athletes. But was Russell Wilson the same guy when you were cheering him? He's still a little bit fake back then, wasn't he? So now that he's somebody else's fake, now now you're booing it? I don't get it. I don't understand it. Some other people said hey, we were betrayed. He forced his way out of Seattle. Did he? Did he force his way out? Or were the Seahawks shopping him and he caught wind of it and wasn't all that happy with it? Or did Seahawks ownership or management fail to put enough around him to make him want to stay in Seattle? Like, I look at Damian Lillard, I think there's a great parallel there if you're a Blazer fan. And Lillard said, hey, I got to get out of here. I got to go win somewhere. Would you boo him later, or would you go, hey, wait, I, I kind of get it? 503-417-7575 is the number. Let's go out to Dave in Vancouver. Dave, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. You bet. Yeah, um, I believe I, I went to the game last night, and I booed him because I, I had the feeling of uh, abandonment. When somebody abandons you, I know it's kind of weird, but, you know, people, they want you in their area, and then when you go somewhere else, you're like, you know, kind of abandoning abandoning uh, the people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, get I get that. So you feel like he he left you, and that's why you're booing. What, what, did you, well, did you go with... John? Yeah. It's kind of like dating, you know. There's a dump or and a dumpy. When the uh, dump or dumps the dumpy, it's there's sometimes you know you know this is hard feelings between the peoples. Did you go to the stadium intending to boo, or did you get there and then other people were booing and you were like, oh yeah, I should do that too? Well, that's funny you mentioned that. I never planned on booing. I'm not that type of guy. I look for the positive and everything, but. Uh, all the fans were booing hard, so I just joined in and started booing. I, I appreciate your authenticity there, Dave, in Vancouver, being real. I do think there's something to that mob mentality. I do think that there were probably a whole bunch of people who went to the game and went, oh, this is going to be really sad, or this is going to be difficult. And then when they saw him and they saw other people booing, they probably joined in. Steven and Sean, Judah, help me out here. What did you guys make of what happened, the scene in Seattle last night? He should not have been booed. Uh, you know, I, the breakup analogy was like, you know, Russell Wilson brought a Super Bowl and he brought so many good years in Seattle. And for all of that time, he did not have a good offensive line. It felt like he was running for his life a lot of years in Seattle. He never really, besides Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf, he never really had a great receiver or a great receiving core. And yet, you know, he brought a Super Bowl. He almost won another one. And it felt like a mutual thing. You know, it doesn't feel like Russell Wilson, you know, forced his way out. He never formally uh, requested a trade. 
But rather, I mean, we learned last week that the Seahawks tried trading him for the 2018 number one overall pick. It would have been Baker Mayfield for Russell Wilson straight up. So this felt like kind of a mutual, like things didn't work out. The Seahawks wanted to rebuild. Russell Wilson wanted to go win somewhere else. And man, I yeah, I, I definitely don't understand the booing at all. Yeah, I think you make a good point, like the Damian Lillard, Russell Wilson correlation there. Uh, you know, I don't blame Russ for wanting out, and I don't blame the fans for booing. Like, I wouldn't have booed because, you know, I'm not like a you know, fanatic of a team, and he did bring them a championship. But I can see where fans, if you're a Seahawks fan, you're salty. You're salty that he wanted out of Seattle because, you know what, you felt like, well, that first Super Bowl, it wasn't really Russ, right? It was the Legion of Boom. It was a supporting cast around him. It was that defense. And then that second Super Bowl when he threw that pick, not necessarily his fault. Great play by Malcolm Butler. But they were so close to winning that second Super Bowl, that would have been more of a rest Super Bowl than the first one. So I feel like, you know, as a fan, they've just felt, you know, uh, betrayed, basically. And so I understand the booing, uh, but I also understand Russ for wanting out, right? Like, hearing that you're, that you're not necessarily wanted and they were looking to trade you for draft picks, for whatever it was, like, that would, be, that would make me mad, too. And so I understand both sides of this argument. I keep going back to the idea that, you know, what do players owe a fan base? You know, what do they owe an organization? All the time we see organizations that will make decisions and they'll say what? They go, hey, we had to do what was best for the team. It was a difficult decision, but we had to cut the player. Does it, does it, is it different for players or does it go both ways, guys? No, no, I don't think so. I don't think Russell Wilson owes the fans anything, right? He gave them a lot of good years in Seattle. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He went out and was a really good quarterback for a lot of years. They won a Super Bowl. Um, he just wanted to go to a different spot where he felt like he had a better chance to win. And, I mean, honestly, even though they lost last night, the Broncos, the Broncos have a much better chance of winning the Super Bowl than the Seattle Seahawks do. So Russell Wilson has done exactly what he's wanted to do, and now he's in a better spot for it. I'm going to go back to February of 21. Russell Wilson is coming off, uh, you know, a disappointing season. He's watching other guys play in the Super Bowl. He goes on the Dan Patrick show. And Dan Patrick uh, kind of presses him on the relationship with the Seahawks. Like, it was no secret that it was strained. You know, the reality of, of professional sports is, you know, things happen, things change. I, you know, you know, I'm not sure, you know, how, how long I'll play in Seattle. I think hopefully hopefully it was going to be, you know, be forever, you know. But things change, obviously, along the way. And I think that um, you, you focus on what you can control every day and try to be the best version of yourself and you know, ultimately try to win championships. And I think that's, you know, that's why I play this game. Russell Wilson appeared to be, at least at face value, locked in with the Seahawks. Uh, within about four months, rumors about the Seahawks trying to trade him, rumors about him asking out. Here's what Wilson said in a uh, uh, off-season workout press conference. There's a lot of teams out there that people were saying that I was going to or would go to. I requested a trade. I did not request a trade. Um, I've always wanted to play here. I think calls were getting thrown around and this and that, and I think that's just a reality. I think at the end of the day, the, the real reality is that I'm here, and I'm here to win. I'm here to win it all. Meanwhile, you had media members nationally who were echoing the uh, a viewpoint that Russell wasn't willing to say. Here's Max Kellerman. In the last half dozen years, maybe there's never been a single season where Russell Wilson's been the best player in football, but if you take his total value over the last half dozen years, probably the best player in the game in this era. He's had more value probably than any other player in the game over those six years. No, no off years. Like, he's just great every year. And it's going to waste. You know why, guys? Remember when they traded Max Unger for Jimmy Graham? 
they clearly made the decision, we don't need to invest much re in terms of resources in our offensive line. We'll get guys, we'll coach them up. It didn't work. The offensive line completely fell apart, and it's been an issue since then. Now, Russell Wilson was running for his life. He had very little support. The offensive line in Seattle, not great. Maurice in Portland wants to weigh in. Go ahead. Hey, John. Um, I was arguing with a friend about this last night, and the way I feel about it is under no circumstances, and I get it. You know, he didn't have the best line. He didn't have an offensive line. He didn't this and that and everything. He brought a championship. Yeah. I mean, the, a Super Bowl championship. Under no circumstances do you get to boot, even if he wanted out or if he didn't want out and this and that and that and that and everything like that. He brought a championship, and, the, and almost two. You don't get to boot. And then for, the, for the, the Seahawks fan base to be what they are, I mean, you know, we got what, the, the, the loudest fan base, you know, the 12 and everything. I mean, all uh, up until yesterday, I would have said, man, they're right up there with some of the greatest fans in sports, in any, any sport. But you can't boo the guy who brought you your own, only championship. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I appreciate that perspective. I think back, I think Lillard's a great example of that. I think very similar management, obviously the same ownership. Um, and the Blazers don't have a championship. And I think there's a lot of Blazer fans, if, if Damian Lillard were traded tomorrow, that would say, hey, he was loyal. Um, Russell Wilson, not so much. Uh, we'll talk more about it later in the show. Bruce Barnum's coming up. Jack Coletto, Oregon State, running back, linebacker, coming up top of the hour. Leave it here. you got the BFT. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. The show just moves right along, doesn't it? I look up. The show's in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry, but the show's in a hurry. Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach, joining us. He is off a loss to Washington. He is uh, headed into... Uh, the meat of his schedule, and he joins us every week. Uh, give us an idea. How good is Washington? Uh, hey, John. Uh, thanks for having uh, the bikes, number one. Um, you know, uh, I got a good look at everybody except their punter. Uh, they were <laughs> efficient. Um, they have the speed on the edge, I think, you need to put pressure on people, I think. We talked last week about their makeup speed, um, their offensive line. Uh, I like your left tackle, and you know you look at them. And again, I, I know they have they have a guy that will be back around November. That linebacker, I forget his name. I mean, they have better guys. They have even more talent coming back. So how they match up against the real world, I don't know. You know, they got a big. I think they have a big one, a ranked team coming this week. You know, so see how they do up there at all. You know, I think they're a league team. You know, you and I have talked. There's, there's, you know, FBS mediums and there's FBS elite. You know, they're not. They don't have the SEC size, but they have the speed. There was there. You probably saw it on film, but there's probably a moment when you get out on the field and you're trying to look for things you can do. Uh, ang you know. Can we run this? Can we run that? It, when you get into a game like that, I also think you're probably thinking about, you know, 
keeping your guys healthy because the point is to get into the Big Sky Conference healthy. How did you come out of this healthy? Well, I took advantage of some things. Um, probably shouldn't be talking about this on air, but we uh, that is a concern. You know, we have first I planned a bye week. I had a choice for a bye week. I planned it after watching watching spring game. I planned my bye week now, so we have two weeks off. Uh, to get 100%, and I am going to get some guys back. But I, I took advantage of the situation a little bit because in my world, um, if you say you're playing for me and you get injured, um, I'm probably not going to get, you know, we don't we don't have things on site. I'm probably not going to get your x-ray to find out what's wrong with you until, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, it's just, you know, what, what, who we are right now. But I knew that Washington had an x-ray machine right there in the stadium, so uh, we had five question marks. We got them checked out right away, and there's nothing. Uh, everything was a positive. So, you know, we got banged up, but uh, nothing broken. Um, and, you know, that, it is what it is. You, you now get the time off. Will you give the guys true days off and just say, "Hey, step away from football for a day or two? Or how do you how do you manage that? Well, bye week's always a question with every coach. You know, when you make the playoffs, if you're in the second round, it's a question. What we're doing, right or wrong? Um, we have uh, we have regular Sunday. Uh, we're going Monday, Tuesday. And I think today's Tuesday, so we want two days. Tomorrow uh, we have a tailgate uh, starting at eight thirty for um, the travel squad, uh, breakfast burritos, free Gatorade, free water in the jugs. I've got the, the beanbag things set out and all the games. They do at tailgates. And the scout guys are having a, a game at the scout bowl. So they're going to tailgate. Other guys other guys going to meet at 830, get ready for the 1015 warm-up, kickoff, probably 1042. I'm still working that out with ESPN. Um, then Thursday we will – have another we've been montana montana tomorrow scout uh thursday's montana then i'm giving them friday saturday sunday because you have to give them a day off so it's either sunday or monday i uh i didn't want to bring them back to sunday and then give them monday off so we're going friday saturday sunday uh and then we start we'll practice monday tuesday wednesday thursday get on an airplane i have one charter a year i schedule it for this game um so other trips might be a pain, but I know this is a big one. Montana's ranked number two in the country right now, and we're going to go take our shot. Bruce Barnum with us, Portland State football coach. How do you kind of psychologically um, prepare your guys? Because when you have to play those payday games, we all know they're payday games. Of course you're trying to win it, but the reality is you're up against it. And you guys are sitting at 0-2. You're better than your record, obviously. You almost beat San Jose State. But how do you kind of get your guys regrouped? And is that why you put the bye week where you put it? It is why I put the bye week. You know, we got one slip away, uh, then we got throttled. You know, that's reality. That's what I told the guys. Uh, but I showed them the composite schedule of the Big Sky Conference um, and everybody's path to the playoffs and where they're at, you know, and how other teams are, are, are paying people to come play them. We decided to go the other way to take care of the department, but this is when it gets real. So uh, kind of a preseason talk, you know, preseason's over. Uh, now let's start. You know, and they were down. It's a competitive game. The egos, there's everything involved. Uh, but I told them they had to shake it. You, you have to shake it because it it's a good football team. 
or FCS level, you know, um, one of the top teams in our conference, you know, that we're going to go up against. We had four ranked teams and went down and, you know, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're going to look at the glass half full, you know, Oregon scored 70 on a team uh, that's ranked in our, in our world. So, you have to get over it. I go preseason and ready to go. Here we go. We have to win this mini. Uh, let's get the playoffs. So that's how we kind of regroup them. Bruce Barnum is with us, Portland State uh, football coach. Oregon State's playing against Montana State at Providence Park. How does that game being at Providence Park sit with you? Because that used to be uh, the Vikes' home stadium. I can answer that right away. That's it does. This is me off. I mean, come on. Are you kidding me? Um, but, you know, things I'm not in control of. Uh, that'll be an interesting game. Um, our bye week, actually. I talked to some of my players today. I'm going to text Vegan, the Montana State guy, and see if they can get down the sideline because we don't play them this year. But, you know, that'll be interesting. I know Smitty, they got a tough, you know, run the ball, hit you uh, football team. That's who Bryn Vegan is, too. That's who Montana State is, you know. Montana State's an old-school run, smash, don't care if it's 7-3. You know, he came, he's a flatlander. He came from North Dakota State. And they won a lot of football games. And, uh, he, he, I, I, I like their team, Oregon State. It's 2-0, though. And, you know, again, they're, the, uh, they're supposed to win this football game. I just think it, I think it would be a, a game for the, you know, uh, the guys who like a run game, field position type of deal uh, game. The When you say it pisses you off, are you mad at the people who are in control of Providence Park? Are you mad at Montana State? Are you mad at Oregon State? Or just upset in general, it oh, pisses no, you I, off? Nothing at Oregon State or Montana State. I mean, uh, the, again, they're, they're not in charge of the plays there. I don't know how that game came across. And I understand... You know, they say we didn't get kicked out of the stadium because we kept playing. We kept paying the money, you know, because it kept going up and up and up and up for cost of living for our workers. Up, 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 and then it went to, um, you know, they said, you know, Mario, we didn't kick you out of the stadium. Well, they didn't. They gave us like a window Monday to play our games from like one to eight. And I said, you know, anyway. So uh, I just wish it wouldn't have happened. The high, there was a lot of good that for Portland. Not just us, all the high schools, all the playoffs. I mean, that, that that was a that was a destination, not just for soccer, you know. And it got taken away. And however it happened, um, it happened. And yeah, I mean, I'm on the other side. I enjoyed what you know Providence used to be, or Civic, or whatever you want. Mode. I don't even know what it is now, but I enjoyed what it was, you know, for the city of Portland. Even when I was a kid, I was. The bridge, and we came over to the, the be- Beaver. Everything that was there, you know, uh, saw Louis Tian, saw all that stuff, and that's gone. And it's soccer, you know. And that's who who it is right now. Whoever's fault it is, I don't know. I'm pissed just because I would love to have it back. And I mean, my team, everybody. Uh, we were ranked one of the top places in the uh, conference, you know, one one of the coolest stadiums, and now we're not. So. Is there a shot that this could open the door for you getting back in, or do you uh, has that already been explored? No, I, I think it's been pushed. I think we've asked. I think we've, you know, brought 
a couple pops to talk about it. I don't think the door's open, you know, um, just from what I hear. And, again, I'm not in those talks, John. I hear it, you know, sideline. I hear it after it's happened. But I, I don't think they're uh, – they want that. Just my uh, – what I gather, and, again, I don't explore it. It's not me. They don't want to, you know, talk, talk to me. I'm the guy who walked around to <laughs> – they're waiting for tickets to – uh, go to the game, the soccer games. I remember after one of our games, they were tinted up. And I said, you know what, i got to get these people to my game. So I'm walking through all the tents, and it was it was interesting. I want to leave it at that, but I saw some stuff. I, uh, I, I already got my ass in trouble for it by the little kid. You know, by the yeah. You, you come on the show, you often you, you say afterwards you got in trouble, but I back you on this one. I think you should be playing your games there. It's a shame that, sure, you know. I, I think all the high school should, too. Man. It, it, that was a cool spot. Yeah. Do you, but, I, hey, I, no reason to bitch. Let's either fix it or build something new or yeah. move on. I mean, I'm not going to fight Merritt. And he's got more money than me and more power. And that's fine. I don't think he's an enemy of the state. I just think he, you know, I think you need, from what I hear, you need a certain thing for soccer. You know, and, and that turf is gold, you know. Uh, that's how they talk, and it has to be. They replace it a lot, and they uh, they can't have traffic on it. They'll ruin it for their athletes, and they are top, you know, uh, they're top athletes, and they don't want to get them injured. And I don't know if it's a liability or what. I just know we're not playing. Bruce Barnum is with us. I want you to enjoy your week off. Um, I want you to come back next week ready to talk about uh, your schedule and your season. For people who don't know, uh, Portland State uh, got a great group of guys. They've been supportive of the community. They're at Montana on the September 24th, and then they are back home at Hillsborough Stadium on October 1st for their homecoming game. Uh, and it's a great opportunity for, for families especially to get kids out to the game and, and see a college football game. Bruce Barnum, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us, John. I'll talk to you. There he is, Portland State football coach, Bruce Barnum. Stephen, before we go to break, can I just say that I think he spoke for a lot of people. I know the principals involved at Providence Park. I know the people involved at Portland State. It feels like this should have never happened the way it happened. They feel squeezed out. I don't blame the Timbers. They want a soccer-first facility. But here we have a college football game on Saturday night, and I don't know how else Portland State's supposed to feel. Yeah, I would feel... It's a weird, it would be a weird spot to be in, just like he said. You know, like it sucks. That's that's all that he can say because it once was their stadium and now it's not because they didn't want him there basically. And now there's another college football game that like it doesn't make sense if you're Portland State. You you can't be happy about it. He's mad, and I don't blame him. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We always get good interviews on this show. Bruce Barnum, outspoken, authentic, original. Those are things I like to, uh, those are guests I like to bring on the show. Uh, I think he spits truth. He's not happy about Portland State being locked out of Providence Park. He's not happy about seeing Oregon State and Montana State play there. The rest of us are going, hey, this is awesome. We got a college football game in Portland. But Portland State, whose campus is within 
what, blocks of Providence Park? Like right there, that was their stadium. They have different feelings about it. And Bruce Barnum's done being diplomatic. Sean, Stephen, what do you make of it? Yeah, it's, it's exactly what you guys have been talking about. It's certainly an injustice. You know, like I, I understand the Timbers, like what Coach Barnum was saying, like the Timbers are your top athletes. They're uh, consistently a powerhouse in the MLS. You want to keep those athletes healthy and, you know, the turf, like maybe it's just not feasible to switch out the turf every single time that there's a football game and soccer game. But at the same time, you mentioned it with uh, just where Portland State is located, just right outside of these studios, you know, so is Providence Park, right, right outside of these studios. Same vicinity of Portland and now Portland State, I'm sure Coach Barnum's job is a lot more difficult, constantly having to kind of tweak his schedule to play, you know, at Hillsborough Stadium or wherever they have to play, you know, rather than just having that that main field. And I think Portland State is, uh, a, you know, there's certainly a deserving program to have their own stadium. So it's uh, it's an injustice, and I'm, I appreciate that he uh, that he spoke out about it with uh, with kind of the candor that he did. Yeah, the big takeaway I had away from it, John, was Coach Barnum doesn't seem like he's a big fan of soccer. In general, (laughs) right? Like, you know, when you grow up and you're in high school or you're playing sports as a kid, soccer and football is always during the fall season, right? It's always the same time. There's always that little bit of rivalry. You know, football players don't think soccer guys are tough. Soccer players always are defending themselves. Bruce Barnum really seems like he does not like soccer at all. Find me a a football coach that's a big soccer fan. And and I think that was what came out, you know, it was just like, not only are they losing their stadium, but they're losing it to the soccer team. Right, and that's what he doesn't like about it. And I think he has a fair argument, right? Like, we want college football, we want football in the city of Portland, and we had it, and now they're moving it out to Hillsboro, and they can't get back in. So I agree with Bruce Barnum. I think I would be, I would be furious as well if I was in his spot. So I have, uh, I blame him zero percent on this. I'd be livid if I were him, but uh, just for the sake of argument, you know how when you're in high school or you're in college, and the teacher said or the professor said, "Hey, we're going to have a debate." and they assigned you a side of the debate that you didn't agree with, if I assign you the Timbers side of this debate, I would lead with, hey, uh, you know, we want to be taken seriously as a sport. We have the largest fan base, the most rabid fan base uh, amid among uh, women, uh, the, the women's team and the men's team. Uh, we want to prioritize this. We don't want a football field in the lines of a football field across our soccer pitch. What else What else should be included in that argument on the Timbers side of this? The Timbers are professionals, right? They are professional athletes where Portland State, you know, yes, you can get NIL deals, but they are college athletes. They're amateur athletes. So I think that has a lot to do with it. And I agree with you, the fact that they want to be taken seriously. You know, I'm not a big soccer guy, but I've been to a couple of Timbers matches working here, and they're fun. Like, it's a great, a great atmosphere they have there. Um and so if you're the Timbers, you want to be taken seriously as a top-notch organization in the MLS, which they have won an MLS Cup, and they're professional athletes. So I think that is that is the big thing for them is they don't want to be a minor league team, right? We talk about the Blazers, how when they weren't going to send their broadcast team out, minor league move. Like, it's kind of a minor league look to have, you know, the lines of a football field on your soccer field, right? We remember, like, when the Raiders were playing and they had the Oakland at the Oakland Coliseum and they had the yeah, baseball field. It yep. looks it looks bad, right? It doesn't look like a professional team. So I think that's what the Timbers are going for is they want to be taken seriously as a professional soccer team. I noticed when the when the Portland State team was still playing there in the last season that they played there, they started painting the numbers and the lines, the yardage numbers, very lightly on the pitch. They went lighter and lighter until you, 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 you damn near couldn't see the lines. It was evident that 
soccer was the priority. When you watch the Sounders play and they're playing on an NFL field, um, there is some sort of psychological effect there that says, hey, this isn't the priority. So I, I want to say this. Like, I get it. I get why the Timbers don't want football played at the stadium. But if you don't want football played at the stadium, why are you selling out for this Oregon State game? Why are you, why are you letting some football get played and not others? Because now it feels like it's a money grab. I agree. I mean, it, it, because if you wanted college football played at that stadium, there was a team there. There's no reason to have to go out. Now, I understand, like you said, it, it, it just seems like it's the money grab that there's going to be more fans that are going to come to this game than maybe there would be for a Portland State game. But what are you going to do? Are you just going to have, try to have Oregon here next year? Are you going to try to just bring in the, the other Oregon schools and not have a team here play all the time? I, I don't know, man. It's, it's a weird spot. Yeah, and f- correct me if I'm wrong, but the uh, OSAA football championships used to be at Providence Park. Now it's yeah. at Hillsborough Stadium. Yes, they used to be there. Uh, it's it, it really has – it is a loss. Like, I think the net effect, if we can all step back from 20,000 feet or 40,000 feet, is that you had this great venue that was in the heart of downtown, in the heart of Portland. Uh, Portland State played their football games there. Big high school playoff games were played there. And, oh, by the way, uh, back in the day, there was the Portland Beavers AAA games. And, and then, oh, by the way, some Timbers games. And then as the Timbers invested in the stadium – expanding the stadium, improving the stadium, took over operations at the stadium, they very slowly and methodically started to squeeze things out. Now, I have raised that that idea with Timbers management and ownership, and I said, hey, you squeezed out Portland State, and they object to that, 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 that characterization of it. And, you know, it's more from their standpoint that, hey, we were investing in the infrastructure of the stadium. We were the one putting the resources into the stadium. Why shouldn't we get to control the stadium? What do you say to that, guys? Yeah, I think that's a good – I mean, I, it's a good argument on that side as well. Like you said, to play the opposite side, that would be a great argument. They're putting the money in. They kind of control it, right? And it's just like owners or you know GMs of teams, you know, they don't owe necessarily the players the money if they don't feel like they deserve it and they can get rid of it, they can trade it. So the Timbers putting in the money to the stadium, putting all the money into that area, like they don't necessarily have to have you. Now, I don't know the exact logistics of it, the details of it, but it seems like they made it just way too hard for Portland yeah. State to play there. So yeah, that's their choice. Do I agree with it? Not necessarily, but it is their choice. I'm 100% If with I'm you. taking the other side, though, yeah. there are other professional organizations. Uh, Miami Dolphins, they share with the Miami Hurricanes. Uh, you know, the Atlanta Falcons and Atlanta's MLS team, they share that, that giant stadium that Oregon and Georgia played in. So, you know, it, the Timbers, uh, you know, like while you can understand it, there's, there's other professional sports organizations that are willing to share. So you have to keep in mind that part as well. I totally agree. I think there should have been a happy solution, happy medium. And frankly, I think if we had better leadership in the city, somebody from the city would have stepped in and said, hey, wait a minute, this is a great civic venue. It used to be you know, formerly known as Civic Stadium. Uh, that park, it, it shouldn't just be, hey, uh, it's Timbers only, and oh, by the way, if you're willing to pay enough, we can let your football team play there. You got the bald-faced truth. Our big splash coming up. Jack Coletto, the jackhammer, 4 o'clock. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. People are upset about this Portland State not having a football stadium thing. 
publicly funded stadium? Why aren't the Portland State University Vikings allowed to play in the stadium that is adjacent to their university? Chad's in Iowa. We got a line open at 417-7575 in the 503 area code. Chad in Iowa, in the cornfields of Iowa. What's going on, man? <laughs> yes, sir. So here's, here's my take on it, because I remember when Portland first got into the MLS. The thing was is that they needed a, a major, just straight-up MLS stadium, and we can look at Quest Field and whatnot. The MLS plays 34 games. You tag that in half. It's 17 home, 17 road. Uh you look at, like, college football, that's, like, eight and eight. You know, you look at major – or you look at the NFL, that's also eight and eight, roughly. Well, now, whatever it is. Uh, but the fact of the matter is is that they needed a quick turnover. Uh, so the MLS mandated that they had to be able to keep it MLS-ready the entire time in order to get a team. So the stadium had to always be MLS-ready. Now, that's not to say that they should not be able to bring in Portland State, at least for a game or two. But the thing is is that the MLS doesn't want to have to pay for Portland State to repaint the field. Or the MLS doesn't want to have to repaint it afterwards. They want it to always be soccer-ready instead of football-ready. And when you have a 34-game season versus a 16-game season, and only half of those 16 games are played, you know, at home, like, Quest Field is perfect because then the MLS, they play earlier, they play longer, and it's easier for them to, to recreate an MLS yeah. field. Yeah, it, part of the issue, it's not just the field. I, when I talked to the Timbers about this originally, they talked about playoff dates and how MLS says – you have to have this certain window available for them to play. It's why Bruce Barnum made the crack about they said we could play on Mondays between 1 and 8 p.m. Uh, it's frustration that he's talking about because the MLS playoffs will coincide with part of their season, and, and MLS waits to schedule those games. But to that point, um, I do think there were some times and some opportunities, like you know, even as, as Chad in Iowa started to go round and round about, hey, this many games, this many games. I'm sitting here going, 365 days, uh, what, are we talking about 315 days or so that that, ben- that venue isn't going to be used in an average year? Like, it, it needs to have more use. It doesn't need to sit empty. Sitting empty doesn't do anybody good. Doesn't do Portland State good, doesn't do the Timbers good. So there has to be a solution. And I'm not optimistic that they're going to find it, but I do think we could put some public pressure on the two sides and say, look, um, you know, Portland State is happy to go out to Hillsborough. Hillsborough is happy to have them. I know Hillsborough has done a great job. They're investing in the infrastructure out there. But in the meantime, it's a shame that that venue is sitting empty. And I think it's, uh, it, frankly, a slap in the face to Portland State that Montana State is being allowed to come in there and play a game in what used to be their home stadium. I don't blame Bruce Barnum for being pissed off about it. Not a bit. If I were him, I'd be pissed too. And uh, and I think, look, I do think it, it, like the city itself has got some responsibility here. Let's go to Ian in Portland. Ian, welcome to the program. Hey, John, how's it going? Going well. Cool. So I was just going to make a comment. I know Merrick made a tweet, and a lot of us active Timbers fans have been pushing hard for a real turf, real grass in the field, because that would allow us to get World Cup qualifiers. 
on top of what else we've been trying to deal with. And that issue alone, I feel like if the grass would have been on schedule put in today or this year, that I don't think any of these football games are going to play. And this makes it honestly look more like a cash grab to me because the opportunity is there. But I don't know for a fact that the turf was going to happen this year, but Merritt kind of seemed like it just wasn't happening this year. Yeah, and also when you look at you know the World Cup matches that are being played, um, we're talking about you know stadium expansions that you know you look at the cities that are going to host games. They're large cities. They're large venues. Um, you know we're not talking about capacity of twenty five thousand seats or whatever. We're talking about the ability for. Um, you know, or 30,000 seats, we're talking about venues that can hold 60, 65, 70,000 seats. And so I think part of it isn't just the playing surface. Part of it is the fact that, you know, these World Cup games and qualifying matches need to be in larger venues. So I think you're stuck a little bit. And I really do wish that the Timbers organization would take a moment to kind of just go, look, how, what's the right thing to do? What's the right thing for the city? What's the right thing for Portland State? What's the right thing for them? That brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. But the big splash. Robert Sarver, owner of the Phoenix Suns, has been suspended for one year. He's been fined $10 million by the NBA as a result of the investigation into the Suns franchise. NBA announced the punishment today, saying their investigation found that during his time with the Phoenix Suns, Sarver used the N-word at least five times when recounting the statements of others. Also, there were instances of inequitable conduct towards female employees, and sex-related comments, inappropriate comments about employees' appearances. Basically, Robert Sarver was a creep. The NBA uh, launched an investigation after a story was published in November of 2021 detailing the allegations. He's been the owner for 17 years. NBA says he fully cooperated with the process. Sarver out $10 million, suspended one year. Jack Coletto, Oregon State's Swiss Army Knife, is coming up. Two-way player. The Gordy Lockbaum of college football today is next. Leave it here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. He was the hero on Saturday night. I was in Fresno, but when Jack Coletto was b- behind the offensive line, I had no doubt he was going to score. You probably did at home. Jack Coletto, tell us what it was like for you to be on that field. Plays called. Uh, you get in the end zone, you win the game. You don't get in the end zone, you lose the game. What are you thinking situationally there? I was thinking get in the end zone and win the game so you can score <laughs> the rest of the night. <laughs> were, were you surprised – with Jonathan Smith, Coach Smith's decision to 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 bring the field goal unit back off or on, or what were you thinking at that time? Um, 
Well, when they brought him on, I was like, yeah, I think we could get him overtime. Then they called timeout, and he's like, nope, let's get the offense up. And I kind of laughed a little bit. Like, that's pretty funny. And so, no, I mean, we were on the two-yard line. I, I honestly thought we could have punched it in, and then they called timeout and switched up the play call. And, like, as soon as I got out there and lined up, I was like, okay, I mean, we have, we have a good chance here. And turned in our favor. Yeah, earlier in the game, you had a short-yarded situation where you guys ran the ball and you kind of went, more up into that a gap was that the original call and then you guys checked out into something else you guessed it it's pretty good yeah <laughs> well, exactly what it was because I'm, I'm just putting myself in the defense's shoes because they had to be thinking right. okay here it comes we've seen this before but uh, you know when you line up and you saw the defensive look they gave you you know you had to think you had a good shot well it's funny because when they we first went out there and we had the same formation and the same play and they called timeout. I knew they were just going to try and adjust and line up to that. And so that's when uh, I was talking to Smith and Mahalchuk. I was like, well, we need to switch up the call so they can't just scheme us up for this play. And so then we ended up switching up the, the entire call. And I think it, I don't know if it completely messed them up, but it, I think it did enough to give me a shot to get in the end zone. Give us that feeling as a team because, you know, you get into the end zone, you jump up, you throw the ball to the official or hand the ball to the official, and then, then it's kind of bedlam on the field. That, that emotion and that feeling, many of us have not been there. What was that celebration like? Uh, I don't even remember. It was all a blur. <laughs> I mean, he's got a touchdown, and you just start going nuts. You start doing things you don't even remember doing or you don't <laughs> think you could do. And Yeah. I mean, the best way I could describe it is just the blur. When you were a kid, did you uh, did you you know play in the street? Did you did you go down the hallway and pretend to score the winning touchdown? Uh, did you have moments like that? Oh gosh, I can't even tell you how many times I've like done that in my head when I was a little kid. Which is kind of crazy to think when you have those visions and dreams when you're eight, nine years old, and for them to come to fruition. Shoot, how old am I again? Oh, yeah, it's about 15 years later. <laughs> You, yeah. you are uh, you are you come out of Camas High School. For people who don't know, you you were on a really good Camas team that you know went to a state title, fourteen and zero. Seattle Times Player of the Year, Gatorade Player of the Year in Washington. Uh, but you did it at a, at kind of a, a multitude of positions. Like you at your stats, you threw for like 20, 2,800 yards. You rushed for another twelve hundred yards, twenty touchdowns. Were you going to be a quarterback? Were you going to be a running back? What was the plan? Oh, my plan all along was to be a quarterback, and I actually was pretty stubborn about it, and which was part of the reason I ended up going uh, to junior college. And fortunately enough, it got me to where I'm at right now at Oregon State, but the, it just came a time when the door started to close a little too much on me, and I, you know, I was like, well, I probably should start to be open to Seeing what else I could do to contribute and get on the field, because honestly, that's really all I care about is just getting out and playing. Yeah, you are getting on the field, though. I mean, for for people who don't know, you're like the modern day Gordy Lockbaum. Do you do you remember Gordy Lockbaum before your time? That was before my time. Well, I I remember Gordy. He was a he was like he was essentially doing what you're doing now, and you know. I, I had Pat Hill, the Fresno State coach, at the game. He was the former Fresno State coach. He was he came by and he said that guy's like Gordy Lockbaum. And you know what does that feel like to you? Because you've probably been doing that your whole life. You've been playing both ways your whole life and on the field your whole life. No, I mean I haven't really like really embraced or adapted playing multiple positions. I feel like 
a lot of athletes who get recruited tend to play multiple sports and multiple positions on their team, usually because they're the you know, the best athlete on the team. But I didn't really start adopting it till really I got at Oregon State and uh, switched positions because I was really adamant about playing quarterback at the next level. Give me an idea of how your experience at quarterback helps you now as, you know, because you were kind of talking about the play call. That's almost a quarterback mentality. You don't get a lot of running backs who are like, hey, let's switch up the play call. Has that benefited you or helped you to, as far as, uh, you know, making run calls? It's almost like a quarterback a quarterback mentality. You still have it. Yeah, I mean, that's one way. But I, I don't know. It's just when I get out there and my, I just analyze and see what they're trying to do and try to think through how they're going to try and beat me or how they're going to try and attack me and see if I can kind of mess with them a little bit in regards to that. And I just always try to find ways to get an advantage to what they're trying to do. We're talking to Jack Coletto, linebacker, running back, Oregon State. You saw him on Saturday night. The The mentality of this team, uh, you guys are very mature. you got guys like you and Jaden Grant who have been around a while. How does that benefit you when you get into close games? Oh, the leadership and the experience is, I mean, you can't you can't replace it. There's no substitute for experience. And when we're on the sideline, things weren't really going our way or we were down a little bit. I don't really think anyone batted an eye, and it wasn't really anywhere that we didn't know how to handle because we've been there before. And as Kushner talks about this a lot as well as the team being player-led, and the guys have kind of, taken the reins by the horse and started to run with the you know the dream and the vision and this program and it's been and honestly it's like when you have player-led teams like this that makes it 10 times more enjoyable and fun because we feel like we're the ones in control of our destiny jack you know this is a team that i think has got a real chance to compete at a level that we haven't seen at oregon state in a while what does that feel like to you, given what you have been through, even at your time at Oregon State, coming in, you know, as a, in 2018, you know, really as, you know, a, a quarterback, and now you're on the field as a linebacker and a short yardage back here as a, uh, as a, as a senior. What does that feel like to you to, to have a shot to, like, like, you guys can write your story this season? Yeah, I mean, all I have to say is about time. There's a lot of work and a lot of uh, adversity that this program and the players have had to go through to get to this point. But to see it unfold and develop the way it has, it's, it makes it that much more enjoyable. Because when you go to a program and they're already successful and the standards are already there, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's enjoyable to win and stuff like that. But when you can take a program and completely turn it around and develop it into something special, I believe it's that much more enjoyable to be a part of it. You get back to the locker room on Saturday night. You pick up your cell phone. Uh, what does it look like notification-wise? I don't even know, man. It was, oh, God, it was bad. I turned it off. I talked to my dad, talked to my mom, <laughs> family, and I just I was like, I don't even know how to navigate this thing. It was, it was nuts. I, I think it's great, though. I mean, and I think it's such a good story. Uh, I found myself checking out jackhammercoletto.com for people who want to get the jackhammer uh, apparel. Uh, how, what was the genesis of that? Because people can buy shirts, they can buy hats. Like, what what made you decide? Hey, this is this is something we want to do. I just think there's an opportunity and a market there, and it's an opportunity for me to build something and kind of start to venture into the entrepreneurial side of things, which is 
something that I've always been interested in doing, and it's just trying to take advantage of the opportunity. But at the same time, doing it and thinking about it and talking with family, I ultimately didn't really want to make it about myself either, so that's why I'm big on, like, doing the donation that I'm doing and creating a team around me because, to be honest, I don't really care about the money for, for sorts. I just care more about building something that's memorable. You're giving 25% of the proceeds to the Wounded Warrior Project. Why does that speak to you? I just don't think there's anything more noble or admirable about people who willingly sacrifice their lives and the well-beings of their family to defend what we have and to be able to contribute to people who have made those sacrifices and lost a lot during the process. I just felt like it was the right thing to be able to give back to those people. Jack Coletto with us. Uh, in high school, you played ba basketball and baseball as well as football. Do you miss basketball and baseball? I didn't, did I play? No, I don't think I played basketball. That's what it says on Oregon <laughs> OSUBeavers.com. It says lettered in basketball and baseball. So uh, not true? <laughs> <laughs> did you play baseball? I did play baseball for the first half of it. My last two years, I ended up just focusing on football. Good stuff. So, Good stuff. Yeah. I grew up. I grew up playing baseball and with my friends and going on uh, slick baseball tournaments, which was definitely fun. I mean, we cared more about the hotel pool than actually playing the game. <laughs> did those other sports help you in football? I believe so. I mean, it's just the different movement patterns and different skill sets that you develop and also just the whole aspect of competing and playing as a team all that important and a bunch of different sports help develop those things you so. started as a mechanical engineering major are you still doing that are you graduating what's going on i finished that up in the spring after several headaches later i finally <laughs> finally got through and finished it give us an idea of you know football is so different i think than mechanical engineering or is it um, I kind of take the same approach for both of them. That's just kind of the way I like to learn. I'm a visual and a, I'm a visual type of learner, and I just kind of like to see the process and how everything works and fits together. And it, I believe it does translate from engineering to also football as well. Because when you see how everything fits together on the football field, you kind of start to understand why people tend to do things. This team, this season, you know, you'll get a game as close to Camus as you can possibly get as a college football player. You're going to get to play a game in Portland. What does that mean to you guys uh, coming up on Saturday night, Montana State, Providence Park? You're probably going to have your family there, your brother there. What does that mean to you? I mean, fortunate enough for me, my family goes to all the home games that I'm in. And so it'll be a... Uh... A shorter drive for my family, so I'm pretty sure they appreciate that a lot. But I think it's, it'll be a really cool venue for people to come and see and more exposure for us and another opportunity to compete. So I'm excited for it. Give me an idea of, uh, you know, do you have a personal goal for the season? Do you have a team goal you want to share? I mean, win <laughs> one week at a time. And I I mean, I tend to be more of a process-oriented process person. And I believe if we focus every single week, if we just work towards winning the game that week, all, everything will kind of start to come to place for us. And I just I don't think it's beneficial for us to tend to look too far into the future. 
especially with the season going and we have stuff right in front of us. So we'll see. I think the sky's the limit for this team. Jack Coletto with us, linebacker, running back, uh, uh, all-purpose guy at Oregon State. When people ask you what position you play, what do you say? Like somebody says, oh, they don't know you, and they're like, oh, you play football? What position do you play? What, what's your easy answer? I laugh. I say it's complicated. <laughs> I like that. Exactly. I like that. Uh, it, all right. I'll just say, then they give me a weird look. Yeah. No, but it is. It is kind of complicated, isn't it? Like, you know, I, I kind of look at you. You know what I was thinking on the goal line there? I was thinking, uh, I saw you, I think it was last year, year before, I can't remember which. You did a little, you know, you guys run some short yardage. You did a little jump pass thing. I think you got it. I think it was intercepted. But I was kind of, I kind of thought, oh, are they going to resurrect that little pass play? But then as, as you're, as you're powering into the end zone, uh, off right tackle, I'm like, you know, no, that's a lot better. That's a better play right there. <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about what, the, that jump pass play. Call that one Bruno. You don't talk about it, right? Exactly. All right, give exactly. us a, give us an idea. Away from football, give us one thing Jack Coletto does that, you know, will help humanize you a little bit. We know about you as a mechanical engineer, Camus High School, all that stuff. You got the apparel line. But what else are you doing besides football in life? Um, eating, like, a lot of food. I love food. It's your go-to. Uh, What's your go-to food? Gosh, so mood-depending. I mean, if we're if I were to want something right now, because, I mean, it's not super hot outside, it's becoming fall, um, my family makes a family recipe uh, spaghetti sauce. <laughs> And I've uh, I've got that recipe down pretty good, so I would not be opposed to having that right about now. I love that, man. When I went to college, Jack, my grandmother, my Italian grandmother said, you're going to learn to make this sauce. She taught us all the grandkids how to make the sauce, um, and we still to this day, she's passed away years ago, we all make the sauce. Everybody makes the same sauce. Oh, gosh, that's crazy, because uh, my grandma taught me as well. It's a gift. And, you know, all, all the family members, you all fight to see who makes the best one, but... To be honest, I think I make the best one. Ask, tell me with this, because I, I feel like we, we all do a good job with it, but there's nothing like grandma's sauce, is there? No, everybody says that. She she makes it pretty darn good. She's got it down. But there, I like I think I got it down pretty well, too, because I, mean, I just tried to do exactly what she does. I know. I've tried it, but there's something, I don't know, because she didn't measure. It would be like a pinch of this, a dash of that. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm yeah, saying? She just... She just shows me in her hand, this much that. Yes. Like, this much vehicle. I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see that. Yep. And so then you kind of start to play with it, but that's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Your grandma's exactly the same. The Italian grandmas uh, are, are, the, are the winners out there. Uh, Jack Coletto, hey, congrats to you guys. It was a lot of fun to see you guys. Keep it going. Uh, I know you got a lot, of, uh, a lot of fans, a lot of young fans in particular, and I know that means a lot to you. For people who want to check out uh, the apparel line, it's Jack Hammer. Coletto.com. Check it out. If you want, if you need a onesie or a hat, sweatshirt, he's got you covered. And the Wounded Warrior Project is a big winner in the process. Jack Coletto, good luck to you this week. We'll get you back on later in the season. So thank you, man. Great. Thanks for having me. I absolutely adore that interview. And you know why. Every Italian listening to this show, every every everybody who's ever had a grandmother, I don't care if you're Italian or, or what, everybody's ever had a grandmother Give them a recipe, you know. Leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth statewide. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano.
Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. I rather enjoyed talking to uh, Jack Coletto about his grandmother's pasta sauce. Anna has popped into the studio. What would you think of Jack Coletto? I just thought, what a mature kid. I mean, I think of all these football players as kids, and um, I just think he had a lot to say. It was really interesting to listen to him talk and, you know, walk us through what was going through his mind, and it, it's just great to learn more about him. I, I do a lot of um, self-scouting on this show, and I go back and I listen to parts of the show that I think need work or parts of the show that, you know, I could do better at and – and I have some other people that that give me some feedback on that as they as they listen to the show. And um, I love the interviews in the show. I also love when you come on. That was a point of emphasis that we talked. I'm not just saying that because you're here, <laughs> but it, we were talking. I was talking with somebody last night who who does some of that scouting of the show, like football teams self scout. And I was asking about Stephen and Sean, like you know the in, input of them and how they fit and how yeah. different they are. I like that Stephen and Sean are different ages. I'm going to pretend like they're not listening right now. Yeah. They're different ages. They have different backgrounds. You know, Steven's more of the gambler. He's got family. He's got kids. You got Sean over here. He's on Tinder. I don't know what else he does during the day, but he's just swiping all day long. And then they come to the show. They have different perspectives. And then you come on. I like that you can bring kind of a different perspective. You're not like a crazy sports fan. Yeah. But you get people. And I was really curious to see what you thought of Coletto's interview and, and for that reason. Yeah, I mean, I just, he's so easy to listen to. It makes me want to learn more about him. Um, I love what he had to say about his support for, you know, wounded warriors. There's just, there's a depth about him that makes me want to know more about his family and how he was raised. I love that he's a local kid. And, um, yeah, I just, I, I, I hope to hear more from him. Well, we'll get him back on the show. And, you know, if I were him, because we have Jaden Grant on Thursdays. We do Jamba Thursdays with Jaden Grant. Uh, I think we should have a Jack Coletto-like Pasta Tuesday. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> pasta Tuesday. Hey, a pizza pasta cooking with Jack Coletto. Like, you know what I mean? Just like a little bit of that. Dave in Longview has a question. Dave, welcome. What's your question? Hey, thank you, John. Anna, have you ever talked with Lars about living in Taiwan? I have, yes, very early that would be on. Great radio. I realize that. Dave, is this a sports question or what are we doing? Geography today? Well, What's going on? I couldn't get on yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm well, a yeah. big Beaver fan. That's where I went to school. Okay. Did you hear Jack Coletto? What'd you think of that? I did. I loved it. Get him on weekly. Yep. See? Uh, weekly or bi weekly? Oregon State's people reached out to me immediately after the interview. Uh-huh. And I I was like you know, we need to have him on more often, <laughs> especially if the jackhammer keeps getting in the end zone. Right. I don't know. Steven, Sean, what'd you think? He's well, very, you know, on. I have to address, yeah. I have to address one thing. So the quality, <laughs> the, 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 the first thing you think of when you think of me is the, the Tinder swiping. It's not, oh, you know, like this guy is good. This guy has good sports takes. Oh, you know, maybe he offers a different perspective on Oregon football. He went to Oregon. None, none of that. Just the Tinder swiping, huh? <laughs> I just, look, I was just trying to give you a hard time. That's part of the It's just right our daily passage. check. It's our daily Twitter mention as it relates Tinder. to Sean. Tinder. Right. Once a day. Yeah. You said Twitter. Oh, Tinder. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We just, you know, once a Tinder. day, we got to check the box. Yeah. Uh, and look. Check. I like it. Yeah, because you went to Oregon. 
And, you know, Steven's got the experience of having played basketball in college. So I think I think we got to, you know. Yeah, I mean, Steven's got, like, the basketball, the Blazers kind of stuff covered. Sean, you know, we can talk to him about tennis, track and field, Tinder, and all the, uh, the T's. And, and being a Duck fan. There, it there is. you go. Yeah, Stephen, what'd you think of Coletto? Coletto, he uh, he's very easy to root for. Like that's what I came across. You know, just watching him on the field, the way he plays, and then you listen to him in the interview. Very easy to root for. And uh, you know, you meant, you talked about you know his gear. Uh, so my uncle, my, I had my ten year anniversary a couple days ago, and my uncle officiated our wedding. Big B fan. He's from Camas, so that was a gift I bought him was a Coletto shirt. And it, was be- it was before the Fresno State touchdown, so. I feel like I was a little before the curve on that one. Look at you. Bought that stock. Yeah. You should have bought them. You should have bought all the shirts off the site. And then resold them. (laughs) What's the the resale market on that? (laughs) Uh, that... It it was interesting. I reached out to the, uh, whoever is running that website for jackhammercoletto.com. I reached out to them. It's a guy named Brian. Uh, Brian or Brian, I think. Uh, And he told me, I said, what was the traffic? on the website like after Saturday night's game. He said on Sunday they had 3,000 shoppers on the website. He said that is three times their best day ever, and their best day ever was the day they launched. So they had 3,000 people trying to get a onesie or a hat. or <laughs> Wait, a, they sell onesies? They sell onesies on there. Oh, that's cool. Or, or like a, you know, a, a jackhammer hat or a T-shirt or whatnot. So... Uh, you know, credit to him. It's entrepreneurial. I like it. You know, uh, we talked to DJ Johnson at Oregon at Pac-12 Media Day, and he, he's got a business, too. He's he's like breeding dogs. Like, I, I think we should do a whole, like, entrepreneur episode and bring on all the different ducks, beavers, Vikings, whoever's, whoever's doing business. Well, I think it's fascinating because, you know, before, as fans, what do you do to support the team? You go to the games. You buy some gear you know, through the duck store, the beaver store, whatever, and you can support that way. But it's like, it's the idea that you can support these kids and their entrepreneurial dreams directly, you know, by purchasing their merchandise like that. I think that's a whole positive twist to the NIL thing that uh, that, it, that it is intriguing. There's NIL done wrong. Like, we've seen examples nationally of players who are, get in a car or whatnot and they haven't even played a game yet and they're on campus it's evident that you know there there's some painting outside the lines going on sure. in this world yeah but when i look at kind of what jack coletto is doing with his own website giving 25 percent to the wounded warrior project and he's literally just selling apparel that's got his nickname on it mm-hmm. like this is the spirit of the game this yeah. is what it was supposed to be and and it, I think for those of us who can remember a time when college athletes couldn't think of earning outside of their scholarship, I think I wish more people kind of took this route versus the uh, the whole idea of I'm going to get a pickup truck and some walking around money and I'm you know it it just seems like it's done wrong in a lot of places. Well, well and the the additional layer to that um, that I'm very interested in within the next few years as NIL develops is how much character matters, right? Because like the interviews that these players do, the persona that they are displaying on social media, the things they talk about, who they are, 360, not just who they are on the field, I think that will play uh, an even larger role in the years to come. 
you know, as as people decide whether they want to go buy merchandise, you know, from that player and support their brand. Coletto's just such a unique player. You know, he's just like, you know, the reason he can brand himself is just because he's he's so unique. Like, he couldn't even name his position. And, you know, here the Beavers are. And I, I gained so much respect for Jonathan Smith for what he did, the, the chess that he was playing with Jeff Tedford on Saturday night. The Beavers, you know, from the three-yard line, every other team would probably roll out, look to throw it. The Beavers just give the ball to Jack Coletto and ask him to win the game, you know, and I think that's the spirit of NIL. That's, you know, like Jack Coletto is just such such a unique commodity. I'm not sure Oregon has a player like that right now um, that, you know, fans just fall in love with. I think Sabrina Ionescu was that way. I think, you know, maybe Justin Herbert, but like Jack Coletto is uh, he's just so unique. And I think that's why he's he's really successful at this NIL stuff. Do you guys think that that's going to be more common, that players won't be as defined by their position and that, you know, the broader range that they have as a player will make them more valuable to the teams they play I, on? I think he is an outlier. And I think it is a circumstance thing at Oregon State. Because you think about when, how he came in. You know, he goes to community college out of Camas High School mm -hmm. because he wanted to play quarterback. He said, I am a quarterback. I need to go play quarterback. And the only place he could go was go to community college. So he goes to Arizona to play community college. And then Oregon State which was amid a massive downturn, takes him as a quarterback mm -hmm. and gets him in the door. And I think the only reason why Jack Coletto has been able to play linebacker and running back, short yardage running back, is because when Jonathan Smith got there, I think the cupboard was bare. And I think there was a real need. And they were looking around going, hey, uh, we got to MacGyver this. And they found MacGyver in uniform. And they were like, hey, we could use that guy. We can use him on the offensive side of the ball and the defensive side of the ball. And, you know, Sean, you make that point about Jonathan Smith playing chess with Jeff Tedford. I thought it was really interesting, and I'm going to ask Jonathan Smith this tomorrow when he comes on the show. He comes on every week on Wednesdays. Um, you know, it was interesting that Jack Coletto said that during that timeout, the original play call was supposed to go right up the middle through the A-gap, mm -hmm. just to the side of the center. It was a play that they ran earlier in the game when they needed a couple yards. Uh, Fresno State had lined up. And Coletto said, he mentions to Jonathan Smith, we should change the play here. <laughs> They're lined up in a way where there's, there's a better way to do this. Now, it's the mechanical engineer in Jack Coletto that is speaking there. He is figuring out something. He's looking, going, hey, there's an easier way to do this. And they went off right tackle and caved in the entire side of the uh, Fresno State defense, and it was a very easy score. I think you got to give Jonathan Smith some credit because there's a lot of coaches in major college football that I don't think would listen to a player in that circumstance because it's their job to win the game. It's my job to make the play call. But I think Jonathan Smith, there's something about his ability to kind of go, You want we want to be a team-led team. we got a player who's telling me something, giving me some input. And I think he changed the play because of Jack Coletto. Well, and the Jackhammer even said in the interview, you know, he's a visual guy. So he visualized what it was, like you just said. And I do think it does take a lot of trust with John Smith. But I also think that Coletto has earned that trust, right? Like he has sacrificed for the team. He always wanted to be quarterback. But you know what? He realized, oh, I can't be a quarterback at this level. And now he does everything on the team. So I think he's I – think, I think it's interesting that he's earned the trust of John Smith so much that he's willing to listen to him and change the play. And to Anna's point of, you know – Putting people in a box, a position. I think in the in the best case scenario, yeah, you would love to have people not put people in a box, but that just kind of happens anyway, like in the world. So 
I think it goes along with sports. Like we have these positions that don't necessarily even matter, but since they've been around for so long, we're going to put people in the box for that. Gordy Lockbaum played at Holy Cross. He played both ways. He got Heisman Trophy votes. Um, Oregon State would have to have some success, but Jack Coletto's their MVP. Like, you know, apologies to Chance Nolan. Jack Coletto's the most valuable player to Oregon State right now. He plays both ways. He's on the field in key positions, and, you know, he had, you know, that 40-plus yard touchdown run in week one. He scored the game-winning touchdown in week two. Um, I do think he covers up some deficiencies that I think we should address here. Oregon State, when it's third down in six or more, it's hard for Oregon State right now. Mm -hmm. Chance Nolan, I don't think it's all on him. I think the receivers at Oregon State are a little shaky. That receiver position group isn't strong. Fresno State, I noticed this last week, and I can't be alone in noticing this. When Fresno State was in third and long, Jake Hayner could do it. He had the receivers to do it. It wasn't, you know, you had a chance. Mm -hmm. When Oregon State got in third and seven, third and eight, third and nine, it was really, uh, it really felt dire. And I, I'm concerned about that. And I think Coletto's presence, because he takes fourth down and one, third down and two, he takes those situations and he makes them look very easy. They're not easy situations because the defense is geared to stop you and not give you a yard, not give you two yards. I, I think the long-term success of Oregon State isn't going to be, even though he's the MVP through two weeks, it's going to be the receiving group. They've got to get better. They've got to be able to get separation. They've got to be able to make plays. It can't just be Jack Coletto, Luke Musgraves, Chance Nolan on offense. You're going to need Anthony Gold. They're going to need, uh, you know, Treshawn Harrison. They're going to need some other guys to be more consistent and more dangerous. But it goes back to that point that I was talking about, John, is that Jonathan Smith obviously has trust in Jack Coletto. I don't know that he necessarily trusts, you know, Deshaun Fenwick, who had a nice game. Does he trust him to get that one yard? Or does he trust Trance Nolan to make the right play in that situation to get that touchdown? I don't know that he necessarily does yet. You're right. They're going to have to have some spot, but whether it is against USC in week four or someone else where they make these type of plays to earn that trust to get Oregon State to the next level. Because I will say, Jack Coletto sounds very confident in the team. And it seems like Oregon State doesn't want to get too ahead of themselves, but they are very confident in the skill level of this team, and they think that they can do a lot of good things this year. I also, after that game-winning touchdown, I was I was up in the press box, and I was looking down at the field, and the Beavers coaches immediately after the touchdown headed for the elevator, okay, because they wanted to go down and celebrate. Mm -hmm. I walked out into the hallway and intercepted Brian Lindgren, the offensive coordinator, and I said to him, I looked him in the eye, I said, nice call, and... He kind of looked at me. He didn't really say anything back. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he made the call based upon what we just heard from Jack Coletto and Lindgren's reaction in the box. He kind of said, like, nodded at me. Like, he didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. But I now that I've heard Jack Coletto talk about it, I kind of think Jack Coletto called that play, like, 100%. And that, you know, it may have been Jonathan Smith and Brian Lindgren going, hey, should we go for it, whatnot. But I I'm going to ask Jonathan Smith when he comes on tomorrow, kind of take us through that sequence. Because everybody keeps saying it was a chess game. I actually don't think it was a chess game. I think it was more like checkers. And I think Jack Coletto just went, hey, here's the move, guys. There's like a triple jumper here. And everybody listened to him. And if that's true, if he's, you know, was the idea guy behind that, how reinforcing for him as a player. Like, we've all been there where we've had bosses who – it, like, 
like in words said, oh, I believe in you. I have confidence in you. But really, they just micromanaged the crap out of you and drove yes. you crazy and never gave you the opportunity to, you know, make the important decision when it counted. And so, you know, that's I, I'm fascinated to know if that is the case. I want to hear that from Jonathan Smith, because if that is the case, like, what a great managerial skill as a head coach to instill confidence in your player that way. 100%. I think it's a, that's a great way to put it. I think we could all learn from it. Parents could learn from it. Bosses could learn from it. Because, like, you can say, oh, I believe in you, but your actions always speak louder than words, right? I'll ask Jonathan Smith tomorrow. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. If you subscribe to my writing at johnconzano.com, you know what I'm about to say. I wrote this morning about Bill Johnson, the former... Olympic downhill ski champion. He was the first American male in history to win gold in a downhill ski event in the Olympics. He passed away six years ago. Uh, I got to thinking about him this morning because I was thinking about Tom Brady and Russell Wilson. Okay, it's a weird tangent, but stay with me here. Um, Tom Brady and Russell Wilson, you got Tom retiring, then unretiring. You got Russell Wilson suiting up uh, last night in Seattle and getting booed. Um, you know, I, I keep thinking about generational athletes. You know, generational athletes, who are they really? Like, is Russell Wilson fake? Is Tom Brady fake? Like, a lot of people are saying Russell Wilson's fake. That's why they booed him last night. But well, he was fake when he was with your team. Like, athletes all the time trying to present themselves as who they want us to think they are. For people who know Bill Johnson, Bill Johnson in 1984 in Sarajevo, won the gold medal in the downhill. He was, you know, the first non-Alpine country downhill skier to win gold in that event. He won gold, became kind of a folk hero, uh, fearless guy. They made a movie about him. Anthony Edwards was in, started as Bill Johnson in the movie. And then bad things happened to Bill Johnson. His, his marriage went south. He had two sons. His wife left him. And in 2001, with the... Uh, Winter Olympics coming to Salt Lake City, he tried to make a comeback at age 40. He was 22 when he won gold in 84. So now he's 40 years old. He is in Montana doing a training run, and he has a, uh, a horrible accident and ends up with a brain injury. And I got to know Bill Johnson a little bit because I heard he was living in a mobile home out uh, Highway 26 in the little village of Zigzag that you pass on your way to Mount Hood. And I got, uh, you know, I started visiting him. I made about six visits up there. I was going to write about him. And so I started, you know, making the trip up to see Bill Johnson. And I would make the trip. I would park. I would knock on the door. And then I could hear him shuffling across the room. He used a cane at the time. He would fumble with the lock. He would open the door. There'd be like a haze of marijuana smoke as he opened the door. And... That was Bill Johnson. And we would talk about kind of the heartache of his career and what he was doing. And uh, over the years, he had strokes, and he ended up in a nursing home in Gresham. And I visited him as well in the nursing home. And I woke thinking about him today because I was thinking about Tom Brady and Russell Wilson. So I wrote a little bit about Bill Johnson. If you want to read it, go to johnconzano.com. You can read it. 
But I want to I want to introduce this, Anna. Like, am I reaching by introducing Bill Johnson as a central character along it, like in the concept of the construct of Russell Wilson and Tom Brady and other great professional athletes and like who are these guys and why do we root for them and you know. I don't know. I just I was thinking about him today, and so that's why I wrote about him. I don't think it's a reach because the quote that you had was from Bill Johnson saying, you know, why he tried to do a comeback. And the quote was, you know, I needed to get my life back or I wanted to get my life back. Like, that speaks volumes to me because what I think of when I read that is, you know, we had the good fortune of listening to – former NFL players Alex Molden and Anthony Newman at the Worlds of Sport event this summer at the Convention Center. And Keenan Lowe was there too. And all three of those guys had wonderful things to say, in particular Molden and Newman because, you know, they're a little older and a little more experienced. And what stuck out to me about what they said was, even as you are a professional athlete, you better figure out who you really are because at one point, at some point, that professional career is going to end, and you're going to be left with yourself looking in the mirror going, wait a minute, who am I if not for the uniform that I wore? And if you haven't done the work to figure out who you are before that point, aside from your accolades, aside from the money that you made as an athlete, then you're in trouble. Like, you've got to do that work to know who you are and be comfortable in your own skin and figure out who your identity is aside from, you know, what you've put on for the last couple decades. It's a great point. I hadn't even thought about the correlation with those two guys, but you're right. Like he thought, you know, I wanted to get my life back. What he was really saying is I'm not anything if I'm not an Olympic champion. And that's not true. Like he was a father to two. He was a husband at one point. He was the son, his mother, DB, you know, tried to take care of him over the years. I had Bill Johnson on this radio show 12 years ago, and he said a few things. Um, I asked him in particular what it was like to win that event. Listen to his words here. I didn't know it was going to be a big deal. It's only a big deal now, you know. You know, I, I didn't think anything back then when I was winning. I just wanted trophies. I didn't know. It's going to affect my whole life yeah. forever. He had a brain injury. He's saying, you know, essentially he didn't know it was going to be a big deal when he won the downhill and he won the gold medal. Um, uh, I also asked him about, because he said something to me in one of my visits out to ZigZag. Like, I said, I think you have to be a little crazy to to participate in that event. Oh, yeah. Like, you have to have an absence of fear. Like, right. part of your brain has to be wired differently. Right. So I asked him about confidence and fear in the downhill event. Because you're going 90 to 95 miles an hour down the hill. You're barely on the edge of a ski and you're barely in control. And that's where he was comfortable. Here's Bill Johnson talking about the importance of confidence in that event. Well, I say you have to be confident in that event just because it's nothing but speed. And if you're hair off, you end up like me now. <laughs> It's nothing but speed, and if you're a hair off, you end up like me now. I mean, I bet if, you know, you were able to study his brain 
when especially if he was when he was at the height of yeah. his success it'd be a little bit like that guy that you know is featured in free solo the guy that climbs el capitan with no ropes like the nutty you know alex climber. honold or whatever yeah, right? yeah who literally is missing or has a smaller part of his brain, I think it's the amygdala, that tells your body to be fearful. And so, like, there's got to be, like, a comparison there, you know, for the ability to go downhill at that speed and not let fear overtake you, you know. There's got to be a correlation. I, it, it was heartbreaking. And it was heartbreaking to watch him deteriorate. He died at the age of 55 six years ago. And 55. he was in a nursing home. And I went to see him, and by the time he had had strokes, you know, one of his eyes was closed. He was in a, uh, a motorized wheelchair. But I, I got to be honest with you, uh, in the piece today, I linked a YouTube video of him driving his motorized wheelchair through the nursing home. <laughs> I kind of saw a little smile on his face <laughs> as he was cornering. And, and just if, if you watch it, you'll understand what I mean. He couldn't talk. He couldn't communicate. I had to feed him. It was, an, uh, it was a surreal position to be in. He, he asked me by pointing to this laminated card to help feed him a chocolate bar. Mm -hmm. And I knew him well enough. I, like, I visited him six times or whatever. Yeah. But it's, it's a different thing to hold a chocolate bar and feed a, feed a grown man. Who, and, and you're looking at him, and it was almost childlike, you know, because of the condition he was in. Right. But... I do think we all need to think about not just our own legacies, but think about the athletes, the legacy of a big-time professional athlete. Sure, they got the money, they got the fame, whatever, Tom Brady. I think there's part of Tom Brady that doesn't know what else to do but football. Mm -hmm. Has to be. He's been doing it too long. And Russell Wilson doesn't know how to be anything else but Russell Wilson at this point of, of his life. I'm sure of it. And I think he is a little bit goober and dorky and about how he goes about business but that's kind of what has got him to this point and people have loved him for that over the years but I, I think it's such a relatable point because isn't it why so many men in particular have these midlife crises or when they retire there's a crisis because that's all they've ever known is that their job became who they are it became their identity Whatever that might be, you know, whether they headed up a company or the, were the manager somewhere or whatever it is, their profession became their identity. And once they retire and it's gone, they kind of don't know who to be because they weren't quite developing the other aspects of their life or their personality along the way. So I think there's a lesson in there for, for a lot of us. Amen to that. Leave it here. You got the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, I guess, uh, is Internet Explorer gone? Is that what happened? Looked like it came out in August of 1995, and then I, I saw a tweet today saying Internet Explorer has been disabled officially today. Like, it's dead. It's gone. <laughs> Remember Internet Explorer? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Is that a big I deal? I didn't know you could, like, retire a browser like that. I guess so. <laughs> but Internet Explorer might, in two months from now, say, you know what? I'm coming back. You know what I mean? Is the Netgear, way things are going. Is Netgear still available? <laughs> 
Giselle Net, Netgear. Although Giselle uh, says she's not using Internet Explorer, even though it's coming back. She's done. <laughs> <laughs> so, what else? What else uh, jars a memory? Uh, uh, Netscape, MySpace, AOL. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey! I still uh, have an AOL email address. Yeah. I do too, actually. <laughs> you guys. I don't use it though. I haven't. You're not paying for it, are you? No, no, no. I met some people once that were still paying for it. I was like, you don't have to pay for it. They're getting over on you if you're paying AOL. What were those free CDs? They, what were those things? Hey. DVDs that yeah, they but, hand out to get you to set it up on your That's computer? how you set it up. The CD-ROM. That's right. It was a big deal in my house. I remember when they set it up. We were so proud and so happy. Yeah. <laughs> You've got mail. <laughs> Show me... That you are 45 plus without <laughs> showing me you're 45 plus. Leave it here. We'll talk more about this on the other side of the break. You got the bald face truth statewide on the BFT radio network. More ahead is the happy hours next. BFT. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I'm reading all about Internet Explorer now. Internet Explorer, by the way, you know Microsoft spent $100 million a year on Internet Explorer in the 90s? $100 million a year. Improving it, refining it. It was released in August of 1995. Apparently no longer. Can't use it anymore. It's disabled. But here's what I want to do for you, the listeners. Like, we were talking about AOL. Like, nothing says you were around in the 90s, like saying, hey, I got an AOL email address. What else is a sign of the 90s? Tell me you were around and functional in the 1990s by... Bringing up a device or a product or a business that you used, 503-417-7575. Like Steven said, you had an AOL email address. So did I. That says, you know, 1997, 98, like nothing else. What else tells me that you were around in the 90s? 503-417-7575. Every day at the uh, 5 o'clock hour, we give you the 5 at 5. It is the 5 biggest dang stories that we can find, and here they are. The 5 at 5. little basketball story. Giannis Antetokounmpo was ejected from a basketball game. He got ejected, and Greece's hopes of bringing home a European championship ended not long after. Germany rolling. Greece was down 14 when Giannis got a second foul. And then, by the way, picked up two unsportsmanlike conduct fouls. He got ejected with 4.56 left in the game. He left with 31 points, 8 assists, 7 rebounds in 30 minutes. But uh, Giannis and Greece out of the European Championship. Germany, meanwhile, taking advantage of the home court. Dennis Schroeder had 26. Germany moves on to the semifinals with a 107-96 win. J.J. Watt won't need surgery. Pittsburgh Steelers, oh, excuse me, it's T.J. Watt won't need surgery. My bad. But the Pittsburgh Steelers 
say that he will miss about six weeks. He suffered an injury on Sunday in the overtime victory over the Bengals. But uh, Watt tweeted out an Arnold Schwarzenegger media file. I'll be back. But Mike Tomlin saying that the organization is encouraging the reigning defensive player of the year to get healthy. He appeared to tear his left pectoral muscle in the final seconds of regulation while he was trying to sack Joe Burrow. That sounds painful. T.J. Watt won't need surgery, but probably going to be out six weeks. Number three in our five at five. Let's turn the attention to the Denver Broncos. Nathaniel Hackett now says the Denver Broncos definitely should have gone for it. (laughs) On fourth and five in the closing seconds of Monday Night Football. Instead, he sent Brandon McManus out for a 64-yard field goal that has caused the nation to question whether or not Hackett can coach. One of the dumbest coaching decisions that we've ever seen. Probably raking right up there with me when I was coaching third grade basketball and I went to the box and one in CYO basketball. But let your guy cook. You brought Russell Wilson in. You paid him all that money and mortgaged your future. But in the end, the Broncos trying a 64-yard field goal instead of giving Russell Wilson a chance to gain five yards. Ball put down. Right-footed kick is away, and it is no good wide left. And the sideline erupts for Seattle. They'll take over. Right now, I'm speechless. I can't believe they took the ball out of Russell Wilson's hands to kick a 64-yard field goal to try to win this game. The longest field goal in the history of Lumen Field is 56 yards. Only two kickers in the NFL since 1960 have made field goal attempts of at least 64 yards. McManus, the kicker, he was one for four before Monday night on attempts of 60 yards or more. By the way, fourth and five, about a 48% conversion percentage. Horrible decision by Hackett. Deserves the criticism. And in the end, uh, I don't know. I think this hurts him. I think this is one of these, I wonder if he can come back from this moment from a head coach who was coaching his first game. Moving on, Suns owner Robert Sarver has been suspended and fined $10 million after an investigation found that he uh, not only had inequitable conduct towards female employees, not only did he make inappropriate comments on employee appearance, but he also used the N-word at least five times when recounting the statements of others. They fined him $10 million. He's been suspended for one year. And I kind of wonder how this is going to affect the Phoenix Suns season. From a morale standpoint, it feels a lot like the Clippers. The uncertainty after Donald Sterling. The anger, the frustration that people have. In the end, uh, bad look for the Suns. And uh, $10 million less for Robert Sarver. Finally, Bruce Barnum, the Portland State football coach. Joined us earlier in the program. He said that he is pissed off. He's ticked off about Montana State and Oregon State playing a game at Providence Park 
That'll happen Saturday night. Beavers, their home stadium getting a renovation, getting a touch-up. They're going to play a game in Portland. They want to connect with the Portland market, and they're playing Montana State in a reduced-capacity game at Providence Park. Bruce Barnum not happy because that used to be Portland State's home field. He feels like they were pushed out by the Timbers organization. He's hopping mad about it. He's not letting it go. I don't blame him one bit. And the city of Portland ought to take a look at how a publicly funded stadium isn't available to high school teams, isn't available to college teams. Feels like it's probably time for the Timbers to make room for Portland State to get back in there. Can they do that? Can they find a little bit of room on the schedule and some love in their heart for the Vikings? Sure would make things easier for Portland State. That's our 5 at 5. Five biggest stories that are going on. I have asked you to tell me that you're a kid of the 90s or a person who was alive in the 90s without telling me that you are a person who was alive in the 90s. You can use a product. You can use a business. You can tell me you have an AOL email address, or you can just throw out a musical artist or tell me how you used Internet Explorer. But I want to go to the phone lines here. 503-417-7575 is the number, and Melissa in Portland is going to lead us off. Go ahead, Melissa. How about a disc man? You remember walking around listening to your favorite CDs? Yes, I I do. I remember listening to like a cassette Sony Walkman, but that was more '80s. You had the disc man in the '90s. Do what now? What song would be playing on the disc man that goes with the 1990s? Oh wow! Um, probably like New Kids on the Block or <laughs> maybe the Metallica Black album. I like that. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that works. Steven, you got a musical disc that we could play that would scream the 1990s? Um, How about well, for uh, me? So in the 90s, like uh, when I was in fifth grade, that would be 98. Britney Spears was a big deal. Yep. How about Spice Girls? I'm not into the Spice Girls. But no, I'm just saying. I'm yeah. not into them either. Oh. I'm just saying. My wife loves them, though. And I, <laughs> I, I can't stand them. I always tell her, we got to change the song. Like, I can't stand the song. Dave Matthews. That's 90-ish. Yeah. Jeremy is in Scottsdale, Arizona, listening to the show. I appreciate him. Jeremy, what do you got? Hey, John. It's almost piggybacks off the last caller, but I remember when I first started going to, like, regular gyms instead of working out at home, everybody had a tune belt that they had their disc, man. And if you didn't have one, man, you were not cool. You've been working out, man. For people who don't know, Jeremy looks like he's been stung by a hive of bees. He is a uh, bodybuilder. You're a competitive bodybuilder. Is that right? No, I don't compete. I just work out because I like it. You I just look uh, like a competitive I, bodybuilder. Well, I was a fitness model my first career for a long time, and so it just kind of came with the territory, and then I just have always stayed at it. What, now, So you're in Scottsdale now? Where do you, 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 left, you left us, and you went to Scottsdale. Well, I'm only here part-time. I had to have a back surgery earlier this year, and my doctor's here, so... And I have a house here, so I've just been kind of camped out doing my physical therapy here. But I still have my care homes in Oregon, and um, I'm, I'm there all the time. So I love that you're listening to the show still. You stay in touch, man. Every day, man. Love you guys. All right. There's Jeremy in Scottsdale, Arizona. By the way, with Jeremy, I love that you can just throw out as a humble break. Yeah, I used to be a fitness model. I, know, I, wanted, I wanted to go me too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dude, like, Jeremy's one of those guys. Okay. I'm not kidding you. Like, you go into the gym, he's the guy that people are like, dude, that guy that guy works out. Like, he's carrying a jug of, like, it looks like it's uh, antifreeze. 
You know, he's got like a gallon of it. He's got a bandana on. So based he, off this conversation, you could say he looks like AC Slater out there. Yeah. It, and he's all yoked, yeah. you know, and, you know, he's got like, I looked at him. I was like, you look like you got stung by bees. Mark's in Beaverton. Mark, what do you got? So, John, it was just like yesterday, I got the first Motorola flip phone that, you know, was probably like seven inches long and it had the short antenna that you had to flip up every time you took a call. Yes. It was beautiful. How long? How much money did it cost you to make a call? Do you remember? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, it was expensive. Uh, 75 cents. Yeah, it was like, yeah, I, I remember having to talk fast. Sean, back in the day, just so you know, Sean, thank you, Mark. Uh, back in the day, we didn't have, like, unlimited minutes, okay? <laughs> yeah, no, this this uh, this segment doesn't really relate to me too much. Born in 99. What, what year were you born? 1999. <laughs> you were there. So, yeah, I mean, but, yeah, I was, I was alive for one of those years, but I definitely wasn't, uh, I definitely wasn't engaged. You definitely wasn't. You weren't uh, using the Reebok pumps to pump your shoes up? <laughs> oh, that's a good reference. Well done, Steven. Thank you. Uh, Steven, do you remember, like, the, I had that Motorola phone, too. I think my, uh, by about 1996 or 7, they got it down to about 50 cents a minute. <laughs> and so those were one-minute phone calls. Plus, there was an origination fee. Like, if you made a call at all, it at least cost you, like, a buck. So you had to sparingly talk on the phone. Yeah, I remember, like, I would go to, like, soccer games. So this would be, like, you know, 2002, so a little out of the 90s. But when I was in high school, you go to, like, soccer football games. My parents would give me their cell phone, which was, like, heavy as a brick. And, you know, I just have to, like, put it in my coat all night. And it was just such a pain to carry around. Love it. Carrie is in Portland. Carrie, tell us that you were alive in the 90s without telling us you were alive in the 90s. Following the flip phone came uh, the BlackBerry. So you could message instead of having to call people. Like having a computer in your hand all of a sudden. <laughs> yes. Remember that little ball tracker on your on your phone. <laughs> oh, the BlackBerry. Art's in Portland. Art, what do you got? Hey, I'm gonna go real digital on you. Uh, first off, love the show. You always Thank make you. my day better. But uh, I remember I grew up in a house. Uh, my grandma had a bad eye, and she couldn't come get the paper in the morning. And she woke up about 4.30 in the morning, and uh, I'd have to go out there and smell the coffee brewing and, and get the, the – I'm from Sacramento. I'd get the Sacramento Bee. Yep. And uh, my, my grandma and I would sit there and read the paper together in the morning. And I was always looking at the baseball stats and, you know, the Raiders and all that. But, you know, that's all you I were, got. You were reading Nick like Peters. This. Nick Peters was covering the Giants for the B, and Mark Kreidler was the columnist. Yes. See, that's that tells you. I remember who was writing in the sack B. I appreciate that. Love that. And he was helping his grandma cry it out loud. You know what my favorite part of that call was, though? That he said something at the beginning, guys. And I don't take this lightly. He said he listens to the show, and he says we make the day better. I really appreciate that i think it's the nicest thing anybody any caller has ever said on this show because i gotta be honest like it's been 15 17 years i don't know i was doing this for like a year or two and we've had a lot of listeners over the years and i i gotta be honest like sometimes when we do the show i i think about it i think about what our purpose is here like especially in the last couple of few years it's been hard because 
I think, you know, we saw people who, you know, we were in a pandemic, the sports stopped, and I never felt more pressure with this show than to try to make, you know, create some kind of diversion for people who are listening it than I did in the last couple of years. So when we get a call like that, it does, it is a reminder. It's a reminder that people are coming to the show, I think, to escape. I think you got enough of your boss, you got enough of serious stuff in the world, in your life, and I think... Sometimes it's okay like to do a segment or two like we're doing right now where we're just kind of spitballing on, you know, things that remind you of the 1990s and I think it's important to do that. I think it's uh, I'm humbled by that call. Rico. Rico's in Eugene. Rico, what do you got? All right, I got a couple for you. So for me, 90s, Mike Tyson punch out. <laughs> yeah. And and Yahoo Messenger. Yes. We talk about the internet. <laughs> I love it. Uh, were you playing Mike Tyson Punch Out in like an arcade, or were you playing it on like a home video system? No, it was the home video system, man. And then when the when the cartridge game was actually messing up, you take it and you kind of blow in it a couple times, you know, to get it back on track. Yes, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Do you remember? How about this one? Do you remember uh, NBA Jam in the in the arcade? Was that Absolutely. was that a '90s thing? Absolutely, and you know, you talk about arcade. It's like, you know, it it reminds me of the '90s and the quarters, right? So we didn't have the phone, but it was like, here's a pocket full of quarters. Stop by the payphone and call when you're ready to get picked up. <laughs> yes, I love that. Here, I'm gonna give you a little. Uh, I'm gonna give you a little clip. Keep on fire! Or no, right. it was more. It was more like a. He's on fire. Yeah, he's on fire. Do you remember that, Stephen? He's heating up. He's on fire. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, we. Uh, I, I remember that. when they came out with it on the Sega Genesis. I believe I was in like first grade, and me and my brother played that game just nonstop. Back in the day, Sean, they had a place where we could go and we could play video games. It was called an arcade. Yeah. So you you would take a pocket full of quarters in your bike and you'd ride down to the arcade. And then, Sean, do you know how we uh, designated that we were next to play the game? You stand you, in line. No. You take your quarter and you set it up on the game. Now, your quarter looked like everybody else's quarter. I don't know how this signified that I was next or Stephen was next, but we all kind of knew whose quarter was there. Stephen, why did we think that that meant something? Yeah, I don't know. That doesn't make any sense now that you think about it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because it's not like it didn't have our names or our initials on the quarters. It, like, it would make sense if we all had an individual token that had our face on it or our initials on it. Right. And we'd put it up and be like, that means I'm next. But we would just all line up our quarters. And, like, some like NBA Jams might have eight quarters lined up. And there'd be everybody knew, knew where they were in the order. Like, a, you need, like, a side-up sheet. Like, that would have worked, too. But, yep. like, yeah. yeah. And then, Sean, and then when we were done, we would call on a payphone. This thing called a payphone. You put money in, and then you could call somebody <laughs> on the telephone. Or we had to say, hey, if, if Stephen and I were going to, like, go out, and let's say we were in high school, we'd have to say, hey, uh, I'm going to go, I'll be at Taco Bell at 830. But after that, if you don't meet me there, meet me at the bowling alley. and Or I'll call my mom from a payphone, I'll tell her where I'm going. And then Stephen had to call my mom and be like, hey, uh, has your son checked in? Yeah, he said he went to the movies instead. Okay, then Stephen knew to go to the movie theater. We didn't have a phone, Stephen. And then nobody would answer. You have to leave an answer, answer on the answering <laughs> machine. Yes.
So you guys are just assuming right now that I don't know what a payphone is, or <laughs> I don't know what the NBA game is. Um, that uh, what's it called? NBA Jam. NBA, NBA Jam. I mean, of course I've played NBA Jam. I mean, just because I was born late '90s doesn't mean I'm not familiar with some of the uh, some of the stuff that went on in the '90s. Rite of passage on this show is whoever's youngest gets the raw deal. That's just part, that's yeah, part of the game. Sean that I came in and I'm 35, so it's like, you know what? He, he's in trouble now. Could have been you. All right, 503-417-7575. I want your phone calls. Tell me that you were alive in the 1990s without telling me you were alive in the 1990s. You got the PFD in the happy hour. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Ever since Jack Coletto mentioned that he uh, his favorite food is his grandmother's pasta, I've been craving pasta. I'm going to have to make grandma's pasta sauce. Love that. Steven, do you have like a comfort food that is like that? To, as Coletto and I were talking about our Italian grandmothers, there's something that comes to mind for you? Uh, no, not really. I mean, you don't have a favorite food? Like, if it were your day, what would you be eating? Sean, do you have something? Yeah, it's a uh, burrito. Authentic Mexican burrito. What kind? Carne asada? Uh, I like, I really like chorizo. Mm. Spicy. Steven, you don't have a food. You don't have a concert to go to. What's going on, man? I mean, I just, I, I don't hate on any food. I mean, I don't really have like a, I don't have a comfort food. I just like all food. I think that's my problem. Oh, <laughs> I like, you like everything. Yeah, that is an issue. I mean, you can give me anything. I like it. That's good, though. You're not picky. No. Andrew's in Portland. Andrew, tell me that you were alive in the 90s without telling me you were alive in the 90s. So uh, I know it's I know it's a uh, foreign concept now, but growing up, my family had a feed store in Beaverton, so I used to run around when, you know, feed stores were a thing before they got taken over by Walmart and Lowe's and Home Depot and all these, you know, different chains that sell plants and bird seed and stuff, so... Growing up, running around a feed store was, you know, definitely my thing. But I wanted to touch on, you know, you guys talking about NBA Jam and stuff. But there is, if you want, and I know probably Anna's not going to like this, but a website called Arcade One Up that sells the old school, um, like, NBA Jam, uh, Pac-Man, all those different uh, arcade games. Um, They sell them in the large cabinet form and even the countertop uh, versions i love it arcade one up yeah I'll, ch- I'll check it out i i a few years ago i was driving uh i was in portland on barber boulevard i'll never forget it i was at stoplight and i looked over and there was a pickup truck next to me and the guy had an nba jam video game in the back of the pickup truck full arcade size i almost ran him off the road and carjacked him for it i mean i just i looked at it and i was like oh my gosh that is like the greatest thing ever i almost jumped into the back of the bed of the thing and put a quarter up there just to reserve my spot next that's that's how excited i was to see nba jam did you have a Dan- favorite team yeah. that you like to play with john um i i like i played with Shaq and scotty skiles mm-hmm. and then i can't remember i can't remember who the phoenix suns people were was it hornacek and kj i can't remember i i you can have fun with that game with anybody but Shaq and scotty skiles were tough to beat because Skiles just shot threes, and Shaq was dominant. 
around the basket. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's you, there were certain players that were really good. I remember I used to like Tom Gugliotta in that game. He was yes. really good. It, random. I wonder if I wonder if that registers with him. We'll have to get him on the show. Dan is in Oregon City. Dan, what do you got? Man, riding the bike up to the local market, getting some bubblegum cigarettes, and then slamming some pogs. <laughs> I like that. Bubblegum cigarettes, you, ne- you don't get away with that today. Like, nobody can do that. <laughs> no, and also by NBA Jam, don't forget the cheat code for ARK when you get Bill Clinton. Look at that. See? he's That is insider intel right there. The cheat code. Phil's in Portland. Phil, what do you got? What's up, John? I got I have a few, but I'm going to give you one that anyone that's a real 90s kid remembers Jenko jeans. Yes. They were the big baggy jeans that my dad used to give me all kind of hell about. He said, I'm going to fit yep. two more guys in those jeans because you can't fit those. Yeah. It was Jenko jeans. Yeah. And the starter jackets were a huge deal, too. Starter jackets were huge. I love that. Yeah, you're in the apparel thing. I, I also remember, like, the starter jackets at that time, too, were – were uh, were everything like you know that was that was it? Did you have a starter jacket, Stephen? I did. Yeah, I had a Houston Rockets one because I was a big Hakeem Olajuwon fan. So I had a Houston Rockets one. My brother had a Sonics one because he was a big Sean Kemp guy. Yeah, I remember I the uh, the Stussy logo also with the yeah. S. I would write I would write the S and then write my name after it like it was cool. Oh, look at you! Yeah. Did you know what the Jenko Jans? Do you know what J N C O stood for? Mm, no. Judge none, choose one. Mm. There you go. Boys and men's jeans. Founded in 1985, and you could put, uh, you could smuggle a human being down one of those pant legs. That's that's how how big the legs were. Uh, Mason is in Kaiser. My Mason, welcome. Okay, just picture this real quick. Old school Wooden Entertainment Center, Zenith, Tube TV, PlayStation One, Crash Bandicoot. Look how specific you're getting. I love that. I think just in general. You know, you're not wrong. No, not wrong. I love it, Mason. Thank you for that. Here's, uh, you know, I don't think there's, like, televisions in general. Like, I've seen video arcades that'll put, like, the console from Atari, the console from Intellivision, the console from Nintendo, the first Xbox. They'll put that stuff on the wall like it's a museum. Televisions in general, I can remember, like, my grandparents had this giant television cabinet. It was huge. These televisions were massive, and they were expensive. And I can remember, like, the advancements in televisions over the years. Now, now you like, if you have an old TV, I, I don't even know if it's worth anything because TVs are so affordable now. Well, and the TVs were so heavy, too. That's the thing I remember is, like, anytime you had to haul a TV, like, out of somebody's room or a house or something – it take like three people to carry it. Where now it's like, if I can get my arms around one, I can kind of carry it. Yes. Put it under your arm. Walk with it. Yeah, you know? walk right out of the store with it. Matt is in Grand Ron. Matt, welcome to the program. What do you got? Hey there. Um, I graduated in 88 and didn't really take life serious until about 10 years later. So I still consider myself a 90s kid. But, you know, there was no Rose Garden Memorial Coliseum. Only had about 12,000 fans. Uh, Parker Stadium and Autzen Stadium were smaller. So if you wanted tickets for anything good, you had to spend the night at G.I. Joe's or in front of one of the box offices to get tickets. Yes. Man, if you were lucky enough to get a few of those, you were like king of the hill at school. You waited in line overnight for tickets. That is a great 
that's a good call there. And he threw in GI Joes too. That's a good yes. one. Yes, yes, that which was reminded solid. me of like uh, sports pencils. I remember going back to school. I'd always need like the sports team pencils. When I first got here in December two thousand two, it they still had you know the GI Joes chain was still open, and it was you know I remember going to one of them and. Uh, the Blaze, the Trail Cat, showed up to make an appearance. David's in Beaverton. David, what do you have? Hey, John. First time, long time, sir. Uh, one thing I remember as a child of the 90s was going to the 1992 Olympic kind of playoff game here in Portland and hearing the chants of Larry, Larry. In the fourth quarter, Larry Bird laying on his back, getting up. One of the best memories my dad ever gave to me back then. Are you talking about that Tournament of Americas that they had that kind of was before the Olympics? You got it, sir, right beforehand. Yeah. I remember my dad pointing to me and saying, you will never see another guy like this in probably his last game ever here in Portland, that you, this is a treat. I remember him telling me that, and that stuck with me to this day. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. Uh, what a what a, what a a memory if you had a chance to go to those games and see what is the original dream team the best dream team brad and eugene listening on fox sports eugene brad go ahead hey there uh so so many memories coming back with all these calls but the the reference to tom googliata uh i grew up in the dc area so i i rooted for the googs playing for the washington bullets yeah, i love that you were with the googs i remember when googliata went to the warriors and it was kind of late, like it was later in his career, but he wasn't quite the same. Scott and Eugene. Scott, what do you got? So uh, I'll paint this one for you. I, uh, in the 90s, had uh, a pager, so I would get Paige to come home because uh, that was our signal. Paige me twice, and I'm coming home. And I'd have the window down, listening to my speakers behind the seat of my truck. And uh, Peter Franklin, uh, news talk, or sports talk. You remember him down in the Bay Area? Uh, I, 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 yeah, I remember uh, Pete. It was Pete Franklin. Pete Franklin, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He was kind of, he was kind of crusty, curmudgeon-y. Yes. Yeah, yep. that guy. Yep. I think he was about ready to retire at that point. <laughs> yeah, I remember the fabulous sports babe. I remember, um, what was the guy, uh, oh gosh, the guy, uh, he was the bartender with the gravelly voice, and he would say, rack him. Um, I can't even remember his name. Scott? Farrell. Farrell. Farrell Scotty on Farrell. the bench. Yes. Scotty Farrell. What else do you remember from, like, sports talk radio of the 90s? Ooh, for Anything me, I mean, yeah. I remember hearing about the fabulous sports babe because, I mean, I was, I was in elementary school, so I wasn't too into, like, that stuff, but I remember my dad, like, was starting to listen to, like, that's when the, in the, he really started listening to sports talk radio was like in that era. So I remember hearing about it, but I don't really remember much of that from the 90s. Yeah, good stuff. We got more ahead on the sports front. We'll talk about the Seahawks, the NFL Week 1. It's in the books now with Monday Night Football. Denver Broncos coach made a horrible coaching decision. Did it remind you of any other bad coaching moves? If you had to finish this sentence, Monday Night Football's coaching move that we saw from the Broncos was the worst coaching decision since... Fill in the blank for me. Since when? Since who? 503-417-7575. Back to the Bald-Faced Truth with John Canzano. 
Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Well, we saw some pretty uh, pretty bad coaching last night. Even the Denver Broncos coach himself coming out today and going, yeah, I could have been better in that situation. If you're just tuning in, if you've been in a coma, if you didn't catch what happened last night on Monday Night Football, the Denver Broncos and Russell Wilson played at Seattle. Tough game for Russell Wilson, and I do think that played a role in kind of how the evening unfolded. Um, Russell Wilson ended up on a fourth down and five, having to walk off the field as the Denver Broncos attempted a 64-yard field goal instead of letting Russell Wilson try to go for it. Now, Wilson afterward insisted that the field goal attempt wasn't the wrong call. He called the night special. But this is how it sounded from 64 yards last night on Monday Night Football. Ball put down. Right-footed kick is away, and it is no good wide left. And the sideline erupts for Seattle. They'll take over. Right now, I'm speechless. I can't believe they took the ball out of Russell Wilson's hands to kick a 64-yard field goal to try to win this game. Now, Nathaniel Hackett, coaching his first game as a head coach in the NFL, 42 years old, son of Paul Hackett, longtime NFL uh, assistant coach. Um, you know, he's 0-1 now. He said he came out today and he said, we definitely should have gone for it. He uh, realizes now it was a bad decision. What's your guys' theory on, like, what happened there? Did he just not know? Does he not have faith? Does he not know the numbers? Was there someone not in his ear? Was the moment... Did it just swallow him up? It's his first game, a lot of pressure. What happened? I think he panicked a little bit. And, you know, being the being your first head coaching gig, it was that loud atmosphere. I think he just kind of panicked a little bit, didn't know what to do, and just froze for a second, right? And you could see on the Manning cast, like we played that earlier, Peyton Manning is trying to call a timeout. I think he just froze didn't know what to do. And, you know, I, is it going to affect the season for the Broncos? I don't think so because I think Russell Wilson, you know, has reiterated his confidence in him, but it's one of the worst decisions I've ever seen. I mean, just at least call the timeout if you're going to kick the field goal or, you know, or if you're going to kick the field goal, just send the unit out and then you can keep your three timeouts. If he misses, you can hopefully get the ball back or call timeout and make the right play and try to actually go for it in fourth and five with the quarterback that you paid all that money for. Yeah, and to me, when the Broncos hired Nathaniel Hackett, I just I'm not sure it was the best hire at the time. It felt like it was a way to get Aaron Rodgers because Aaron Rodgers was yeah. a free agent last off season. He uh, was rumored for Denver, and Nathaniel Hackett was his guy. But as Steven said to me off air, he didn't even call plays uh, in Green Bay. It was Matt Lafleur. So I'm not sure yeah. how qualified Nathaniel Hackett is for this position. And because of that, I yeah I see Denver as like a nine win team this year. I think they'll bounce back, but their division's so good, and I don't see them being better than the Chiefs or the Chargers. I think this thing's gonna on him i i think there are there are landmark moments i said it earlier in the show with coaches that you just you don't overcome or it lingers in the background i think too like we've all we've watched i think being in the position we are here in the pacific northwest we have seen some things in the last decade that make a little sense of this of what we saw in monday night football we watched mario cristobal who's a fantastic recruiter struggle with game management as a head coach struggled with it 
And I think that was a game management issue last night. Yeah, I don't know why the Denver Broncos hadn't thought of situational stuff. I don't know why fourth and five, they looked like, you know, they didn't know. Like, they could have called timeout. They could have thought about it. I mean, you had you have a very experienced Peyton Manning on the Manning cast who, like, when you listen to Manning talking about what the Broncos should be thinking there, he was like, I'm going to take a timeout. I'm going to think about it. Then he very quickly pivoted to, oh, they're going to go no play. They're going to try to draw the defense off sides because they needed five yards. It's a quick, cheap way to get five yards. He was cycling through the, the things that a quarterback would be cycling through. The fact that Nathaniel Hackett didn't have like that situation or someone in his ear to go, hey, it's about a 20% chance from this distance, um, doesn't look great. It's not a high percentage kick. Oh, by the way, fourth and five with Russell Wilson – you're about a, that's about a 50-50 proposition. Take the 50-50 proposition, then call the timeout. Like, that was the right call. And, and Steven's right. Like, you know, I don't think Nathaniel Hackett is dumb. I don't at all. I mean, you look back at He went to UC Davis. He was a neurobiology major at UC Davis. He was going to medical school. He's going to be a, like, he was going to be a brain surgeon. Um, instead, he ends up in the NFL. He ends up in Jacksonville where he's helping with the passing game. Then he goes to the Packers where he's helping with the passing game. I do think this is a case of a guy who hasn't been in that situation. Suddenly, it's moving too fast for him. The stage is too big for him. Hell, Jimmy Lake saw that at, at Washington. Mario Cristobal saw it at Oregon. I even think Mark Helfrich struggled a little bit with that at Oregon himself. And I think we've seen this before with HUD coaches who have had other roles on game day, suddenly finding that it's their program – and maybe they're not equipped to handle it. Well, there's some guys that are just coordinators, right? There's some guys that look like coordinators, some guys that act like coordinators, and some guys are head coaches. And I even said this to my wife. I said he kind of just looks like a coordinator when I just looked at him. And I know that's just unfair to say, but like, it doesn't have like that head coach vibe to him. And I'm not saying that he's not going to be a head coach, but just some guys don't have that, right? Jimmy Lake, you bring up that. He's a great defensive coordinator, but he was a terrible head coach. There's a lot of examples like that in the NFL, especially and, you know, maybe Nathaniel Hackett's just like that. Not the dumbest call that you've ever seen, but you know what it reminded me of? I remember Dallas Cowboys under Barry Switzer did some weird things. Barry Switzer had come to the Cowboys from Oklahoma. Uh, he won a Super Bowl with a bunch of players that he inherited. But 1995, they're playing the Philadelphia Eagles. And he's on his own 29-yard line with two minutes left. Barry Switzer, I'll never forget this. He's got Emmett Smith. You're on your own 29, and you have two minutes to go in the game. And, oh, by the way, you are in a 17-17 game. It's fourth down and one from your own 29. What do you do? Well, either you punt it or you run with Emmett Smith. He decided to go with Emmett Smith. Uh, and, by the way, it was third and one. And on third and one, Emmett Smith got stuffed. So now it's fourth and one. He decided to keep Emmett Smith out there, go to Emmett Smith again, stuffed again. The Eagles then ran two running plays and kicked a short field goal for a win, 20 to 17 win. Like Barry Switzer got skewered after that game. I think this call, it's amplified because it's Monday Night Football. It's amplified because everybody was there to watch Russell Wilson. It's amplified because they traded for Russell Wilson, gave up a bunch to get him, gave him a bunch of money. 
And in the end, uh, they decided they'd rather go with the long, low-percentage kick than Russell Wilson. I mean, it's just amplified in so many ways, but dumb decision. Chris is in West Lynn. Chris, what's on your mind? Hey, hey John. Uh, met you and Anna last week, Wednesday, at the uh, West Lynn, um, Old West Lynn um, uh, food, food booth. Uh, awesome. Food I was at food carts. We were at the food carts. Yeah, the, yep, at the food carts. So okay. Was, uh, I saw my life and said, hey, John and Anna, i got to say hello, because long-time listener, and uh, like I said, you've changed uh, time, so I was able to sit in the car today and listen uh, to what you're talking about. But it came on, some of the memories of the um, 90s was, you know, that the VCR, the the, the pager, and, uh, you know, Nautilus gyms were real popular then, too. Which yep, there you go to uh, that. I appreciate that you're out there, man. It's good to It's good to put a face to the listeners of the show. Don't be afraid if you see me in public to go, hey, like like Chris and Wes Lynn did. We were out at the food carts. He said, hello. Leave it here. You get the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up in Portland, top of the hour. What do we got, Stephen? Peter Sampson in the Pulse? We do. We got Peter Sampson in the Pulse. I see Peter outside the studio getting ready. He's got his headphones on. He's getting jacked up, doing some prep. So it'll be a good show. Is Peter uh, stretching out, so to speak? Yes, definitely. Definitely warming up, doing some jumping jacks. You know, don't want to pull anything. I got derailed a little bit, but I, w- I wanted to get at worst coaching move by Nathaniel Hackett. Worst coaching move last night on Monday Night Football since what Pete Carroll comes to mind the coach that he was coaching against back in the 2000 and help me out here 18 17 not maybe before that the Super Bowl uh where they threw it to uh you know they threw it across the field this through the slant when they should Malcolm have ran Butler. it with Marshawn Lynch yeah Malcolm Butler um that one certainly comes to mind I'm sure there's been other ones because that's I mean last night was just a regular season game and sure it was bad but yeah the Pete Carroll thing I think uh definitely comes to mind now, Sean, let me ask you this. Is this even the worst Pete Carroll coaching decision? Remember, <laughs> Rose Bowl, USC, Texas, fourth and one or two. He has Lindale White out there instead of Reggie Bush. Yeah, he's had Stuffed. some bad ones. I was at that game. It was That was the Vince Young yes. game. That I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, why would you not have Reggie Bush out there? He was just the most electrifying player, Heisman Trophy. I mean, I know Lindell White was awesome, but it's Reggie Bush, man. Yeah, I remember after the game, Pete Carroll justified it by saying, well, he was our short yardage guy. But if I'm going to lose, if I'm Nolan Ryan, I'm not losing with a changeup. I'm throwing a fastball. Like, here's my best. Hit it. That's why you are Pete Carroll in that situation. If you lose that game, you lose with Reggie Bush carrying the ball. I agree. Same thing with Marshawn Lynch back in that Super Bowl. (laughs) Your best pitch. Throw your best pitch. Speaking Coaches, of pitches, yeah. uh, Pedro Martinez was another one when the Red Sox left him in a little too long against the Yankees. Bad coaching yeah. decision. Falcons twenty eight three. I'm not sure there was one <laughs> coaching decision that comes to mind. The entire but, uh, game. The they entire came out in the second half. Dan Quinn meltdown. Yeah. That one. Uh, the Falcons are never, never the same after that. I don't mean to laugh. Here's the uh, here's the Malcolm Butler interception. Because right, it, it this one fits too. Pete Carroll's done it twice. You're going to lose that Super Bowl. You give the ball to Marshawn. If he gets stopped and you don't win the game, you live with it. Instead, play clock at five. Pass is intercepted at the goal line. 
Touchdown by Malcolm Butler. Unreal. Malcolm Butler, who almost made the phenomenal play that wound up in Percy's arms. There are flags on the field for a celebration. Amazing. Butler, a rookie free agent out of West Alabama. They try to pick play out. They tried to go here, but he beats him to the punch. And I'm sorry, but I can't believe the call. Me neither. I cannot believe the call. You've got Marshawn Lynch in the backfield. You've got a guy that's been borderline unstoppable in this part of the field. I can't believe the call. Worse than Nathaniel Hackett on Monday Night Football? I would argue yes. Yeah. I mean, the significance of that, I, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, if you're thinking about which ones. Well, Nathaniel Hackett, that one might have been more obvious decision. Like, I, I understand the Seahawks a little bit to want to be able to keep the Patriots off balance and maybe throw it. But um, not, I don't really understand it. But I understand it more so than kicking that 64-yarder. But the significance of it was a bigger deal. It was a panic move last night. It was, I don't know what to do. And the clock is ticking, and I'm not sure what to do. And in that scenario, a 42-year-old head coach should have called timeout and thought about it. And instead, he decided, like, okay, this is the best thing I got. You know, what was like about a 15% chance of kicking the field goal. Now, Jonathan Smith against Fresno State on Saturday night sends Jack Coletto out. If Jack Coletto gets stopped, are we having a conversation this week about Jonathan being too risky, Jonathan going for it all the time. Like, how how much different is the conversation because Oregon State won the football game? Yeah, I think you're 100% right. We would be crushing him, but I think that's wrong. Like, I I am a fan of going forward on fourth down, and Jonathan Smith said this in the post game. He even said, you know, the percentage chances if we make this field goal, best case scenario is we go to overtime and win, but we can still lose. But if we get this touchdown, it's a guaranteed victory. Right, and so the the chances of making that, yes, it's not a hundred percent, but if you make it, it's a hundred percent win. Where even if you make that field goal, you still have to win it overtime. So analytically, it's a great choice by Jonathan Smith. I would never question those type of decisions. I think going for it, especially in college, is a great choice on fourth down. Especially like, look, let's be real. What is you know Oregon State in that scenario? If they lay up and kick the field goal and go to overtime, I had diminished faith that they could win the game in overtime with. Uh, you know, Jake Hayner on the other side and Jeff Tedford. Like, Fresno State, if you want to play that seven-on-seven game in the red zone with them, uh, I think they were going to be hard to beat. And I felt like, you know, if I'll ask Jonathan Smith this tomorrow. I felt like they had a shot to win, and he took it. Well, especially with Musgrave out, too. He wasn't going to play, too. Yeah. I think he said, let's figure it out right now. We'll talk to him. Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up next here in Portland on 750 The Game. Uh, The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time. We are back tomorrow with another great radio show. Appreciate everybody who is here and is part of it. Had a lot of fun today.